Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly and apparently now on Monday podcast, looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm very good. We're going to be jawing about Jaws. We are indeed. As listeners have noted, this is an episode covering Jaws. What it actually is, is an episode re-releasing uh, our episode covering Jaws, which I believe was one of our first six episodes, one of our pilot episodes. Probably it the was. one of those we are least embarrassed by. I don't know if we're proud of it, but we're <laughs> least embarrassed by it, I think, which is good. And the reason why we are doing that is because of our guest today, our co-host joining us on what will be a week looking at the Jaws films, the sensational Emma Kiley. How are you, Emma? I'm, th- I'm very good, thank you. I'm so excited to be here and to kick off Jaws week. Very exciting. It- it is indeed. Well, the reason why we're, we're doing a special introduction for this episode is because when I reached out to you at the start of the year uh, to see if you'd like to come on the podcast, if you'd like to talk about something, you immediately jumped on Jaws. And then like train spotting, which we covered with you, which we had great fun doing, yeah. was like a second. That was a consolation prize. That was like, ah, I don't know if we're going to do Jaws, but we'll do train spotting because uh, we want to do Jaws later in the year. And I think what happened is you said you'd love to do Jaws or Jaws 3 or Jaws 4. And I was like, what if we do both of them? And then I was like, what if we do Jaws 2 as well? And then Andrew was like, what if we do re-releasing Jaws, Jaws 2, Jaws 3, Jaws 4, and we do them all in the space of a week? So listeners, every day this week, so Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, that is every day this week, certainly not missing one in the middle, <laughs> you will have a new episode of the 250 to listen to. We'll be covering Jaws 2, Jaws 3, and Jaws 4 for the first time. At the end of this segment, you will hear myself and Andrew talking about Jaws. But... We wanted Emma to come on and to talk a little bit about. We're we we sorry. <laughs> I beg your pardon. Well, we, we wanted and we wanted Emma to come on and talk a little bit about Jaws for her because she's she's not going to be joining us. Obviously, it's an episode that we recorded. So Emma, why Jaws? What was it about like Jaws that was like I want to talk about those movies? Um, I know people can get really annoying when they talk about one of their favorite films, and I don't want to gatekeep hmm. Jaws. It's one of the most universally haha <laughs> loved films of all time. But like Jaws, if you ask anyone, especially like my family, like Jaws is my thing. It just is. I think as someone who like you know studied film in college and kind of like their you know life to a certain degree and their work revolves around film, Jaws was the film that made me fall in love with films. I like the I. Do not remember seeing any of them for the first time because I was so young. All I know is that there's a picture of me at my fifth birthday party with a Jaws cake. So my parents, like, <laughs> I'm the youngest of four. You know, by the time I was like four, my sister was 13. Mom was just like, yeah, watch what you want as long as there's like no like actual real life serial killers. But yeah, I just like, I count Jaws as like tied with two other films. Neither of them are Jaws 2, 3 or 4 um, as my favorite film of all time. I think every time I watch it, I still like it, it's just objectively a very good story. It's a really good character study. You have fantastic performances, really great script, like, you know, a really arduous um, you know, real life shoot, but turned out so well. But also I just think every time I watch it, I get so transported back to like that kind of time in early childhood where you just didn't care about anything and you just got so lost in stories. You didn't really kind of look at them so analytically as you do now, especially if your job is kind of to do that exactly but I just think about and also my best friend growing up Caitlin who I was kind of inseparable from loved it too and we even we had like a talent show at school and we sang the show me the way to go home song we used to like trace the film covers so it's just pure nostalgia but still also taking away from that it's such a brilliant film I think Richard Dreyfus 
gives one of my favorite performances ever as kind of the comic relief supporting one of my favorite supporting performances sorry I go on and on and on but it's a duality of I think it's a great script and great just film objectively but it just means so much to me and it always has and it always will yeah and I mean in terms of revisiting it for for this for this discussion like rewatching it as an adult like coming coming to it without that kind of love as a child like what is it about the original jaws that endures as a classic because like the original jaws is a movie that was on the 250 we obviously covered it when it was on it dropped off and it recently came back but whenever it was off people would always be like the top 250 should contain jaws whenever we would yeah. mention that it was not on the list everybody's reaction would be what that's insane what, what it was is, insane it, <laughs> it is insane whenever it's not on the list yeah it, it is indeed but uh, first of all i assume you agree it with makes that. people like diminish our kind of they're they're like what are you guys doing discussing a list that doesn't <laughs> contain jaws exactly yeah. but like what is it about like so ignore so if you, you you've talked about the close emotional connection that you have to it yeah but as like somebody who who studied film, as somebody who's maybe come back to it as an adult, like what is it about Jaws that that causes that reaction that is is so strong that makes it so perfect an animal? I think it's because in action films or like films that are kind of along the lines of Jaws, like you know, Man versus Nature, you don't get such vibrant characters, and you've three at the center of Jaws. You have. You know, Chief Brody, who's like, you know, he's I, he, in ways, I think he's almost like Harry Potter. He's like, you're very unlikely hero. And that's why people like him. And like, you trust him, but he doesn't trust himself. You don't know if he's going to get it done, but you also kind of do. And he's just like your normal everyman. And then you've like Richard Dreyfus, who's just the perfect comic relief and kind of like the kid, you know, in deep water. haha. And then Robert Shaw's Quint, whatever he's trying to do, you know, like the... I don't even know what Quint is, but there's a lot to him. But as you said, like there's so many ways you can dig into Jaws. Like you were asking me, how does it compare now that I've watched it as an adult? I think the biggest factor that changed the way I watched Jaws was definitely reading the original novel by Peter Benchley. So I've been watching the film since I was five. I didn't read Jaws until I was 20. And I, it really gave me another aspect of it and how you've, you've been saying, or like, you know, that it, um, Jaws is a Vietnam film there's so much to uncover in Jaws but it never actually explicitly says anything like you know it is this film about man versus nature or it's just a film about a scary shark but it's also about like a man feeling like he doesn't he's not worthy of his position in in the world in in his community and trying to prove that and I think people can really identify with that and I think there's something about Roy Scheider that makes him so approachable like there's a lot of films about man needing to like prove his worth and like i've you know whatever like straight white man or oh, you poor thing but there's something so vulnerable about brody that you just you have to love him um and yeah i think i think i think if i had to put it down to one thing i do think it's the characters for sure um and like obviously we're going to talk about brody tomorrow spoiler alert he's the one who comes back for the sequel yes. but in terms of like quinter or hooper is there anything about those characters like you want to say or you want to I think when I just from watching jaws when I was younger we, obviously when you're a kid you're obviously going to be drawn to the most kind of happiest in quotes like character and that hooper is undoubtedly that he's funny and he's kind of goofy, even though I hate that word. And I think Richard Dreyfus plays it so well. Like he's so, especially he's such a great um, antidote to Quint. Because when you're younger, you're like, oh my God, who's this guy going on about going down? Obviously now it's so interesting. And Quint is probably a character you can unpack the most from, maybe. 
But I think just Richard Dreyfus does such a great way. Just like because Dreyfus isn't like you know he's not like the deputy. He's not the the the, the fool. He's not like the, the the dumb character. He's really smart. Well, he's the expert. He's, he's the guy who's brought in as the expert. He's the expert, and then he he also is kind of represents the 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 young money or like kind of the American dream. That like that's more so in the book, but he's able to kind of walk this balance of very much kind of diluting Quint's stoicism but also being a very like smart and intelligent man. And like, you know, he's probably like, how old is Hooper meant to be? Like, he's probably my age. Is he like 24, 25? He's about 24 in it, if I remember correctly. Yeah. yeah. Like, and, and again, Dreyfus is one of those actors. I think Andrew joked that like Gene Hackman was born a 42 year old man. And so he remained. Yes. All yeah. Of his yeah. Days <laughs> and into forever. Like, Dreyfus is a man who maybe didn't all, it didn't look 24. He didn't never no. look 24. Um, and oddly enough, he, he probably looks more comfortable in his skin now playing like a grumpy old man yeah. when he's what, nearly 80 at this point mm. or whatever age he is. 74, I think he is now or something like that. Because um, I looked it up. I was because, yeah, one of my big fears is that we're going to get a legacy sequel with Dreyfus. And I was like, how likely is this? And I was like, his age makes it very he's younger than Harrison Ford. Oh this my. is this is something. Yeah. So if, if Jaws is like, well, Jaws is like 47 years old now and he was yeah, yeah. If he was only like twenty four, that would make him seventy one. So he's not. Yeah, God, he, like he, there's ample opportunity for him to begin that. Um... Oh, apologies. He's born in nineteen forty seven, so he was twenty eight at the time. Oh, okay, okay, fair. It would have been say twenty seven when they shot, maybe twenty six. I feel like Hooper's meant to. Well, I don't know. Like, like he's meant to have spent a long time in college, but yeah, he's probably in his late twenties. But sorry, what were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so we were much. talking about him as, as as young money, um, as, as like as, as young money as the expert, as the yes. guy, like the, the the urban America, perhaps the representation of urban America to Quint's more like rural, rustic yeah. kind of man, like man of nature. Kind of but that's the thing; instinct. that's such a strong like kind of plot line in the book. But they only really mention it once when Quint and Hooper have that fight, and he's like, "You've been counting money all your life," and Hooper's like, "I don't need this working class bullshit." So that's the thing that Jaws isn't trying to like state the the state like he's, it's not trying to make these very um big kind of comments about the way of the world. It's not trying like yeah you can read it as a Vietnam film, but it'll never say it. So it kind of opens it up to it's kind of like a blank state of a film, and you can attach whatever m- meaning you want to it. But without being a blank state, with whilst also being like a very good story, that it doesn't feel the need to bring in all this kind of polit- political undertones, so that you can watch it as a very serious Vietnam film. You can watch it as a very serious film about a man feeling like he needs to prove himself in in the world, or you can just read it as a fun shark film. It's it's completely up to you. Yeah, and I think I think actually I revisited it last night just to kind of be prepared for this. And again, it it is a masterpiece of, of cinema, but it's just astonishing. And this sounds really mean, given we're going to be talking about the three sequels going forward. But like the argument that, you know, Jaws doesn't need any favors, but watching it while watching the three sequels does it a lot of favors where you notice how well constructed it is. You notice how warm, how much more human it is in some ways. Like there's a lot more humor in this movie than I remember there being, for example. There's a lot more humanity. There's a lot more warmth. And there's there is that Spielberg element. I know that like Andrew isn't a big Spielberg fan, um, but like there's a shot and it's not the famous like vertigo shot, the, the dolly zoom, shot, yeah. uh, which is a great shot and it's iconic for a reason. But even the shot like after the shark has attacked them in the lake and there's the moment where he goes, where Brody goes and he picks up his son and he looks out at the ocean and the camera just kind of like slowly zooms in through the bridge out into the wide open sea. 
And it's it's a shot that is like so simple, but is more effective, I think, than anything I saw in Jaws 2, Jaws 3, or Jaws the Revenge. Um, like, what do you make of the Spielberg of it? Like, how is this your favorite Spielberg film? Is this the best Spielberg film? Um, and is Spielberg missed when it comes to the sequels? I think, like, yeah, Spielberg is missed. I don't know, Spielberg is just one of those directors that he's done so much and he's done so many, like, big blockbustery films that I never really notice his style as much as I would kind of the more conventional auteurs like Tarantino or whatever. Like, I think he's a genius, don't get me wrong. And, like, I still can't believe he was 28 making this film and, like, the the, the whole shooting of it sounded so hard and horrible. Like, could you imagine... I know it wasn't his first feature film, but you imagine being, like, that young and being surrounded by the greats like Robert Shaw and Roy Scheider. But, yeah, no, I think... I think there's a lot to Jaws. I don't, like, I, I, I would find it very um, reductive to say that it's all because of Spielberg. There's so much put into Jaws from the performances, from the plot, from the, the original book itself. I know Peter Benchley is probably was a weird guy as we know or we've talked about that we'll talk about. But, and also probably one of the most important people is John Williams. Like, I, you know, I know it's the score and you can say, oh, it's, it's more about the story, but oh my gosh, this film wouldn't wouldn't be what it is without the score. I think like the, that's very fair to say. It's one of the most effective pieces of film music ever written, where you can play just two or three notes of it and it's immediately recognisable. And you can play it on a piano. That's the famous story about him. Like in that story about Williams going to like play it on the piano and he's like, don't worry, I'll fully orchestrate it. And Spielberg's like, no, that's 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 perfect as it is. Just give me those those notes again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like it is. It's it's inseparable. And again, the fact that like so much of the parody of Jaws isn't even just like the cinematic language. It's the music. Whenever you hear the music, you know that it's Jaws, which is a remarkable piece of pop cultural kind of impact. Yeah. Uh, but is there anything else you want to say about like, Jaws? I know that this is a lot to cram into a very short yeah. introductory piece. But like, is there anything like... As our Jaws expert, as the person who's going to kind of guide us through these four films, if a listener is sitting down, maybe they haven't seen Jaws before, what would you say to them? What would be your kind of big keynote takeaway on it? I'd say go in and like, you know, by the time anyone who's been born kind of since Jaws was was released, by the time they reach the age of like seven or eight, I feel like they will kind of, sorry, that's a bit ignorant. I mean, like the Western world or whatever, that like a lot of people will have heard of it. And then you just know it's the shark film. And I feel like a lot of people just see it as like, it's stupid. It's just a shark film. All shark films are stupid. I think a lot of people think like that. Now, I love all shark films and probably because I've watched Jaws since I was younger. I feel like any shark, you know, film enthusiast Jaws was their first but go into it like you would any other film and just watch it for the story because it's still you can think shark films are just inherently stupid but this one isn't you can say what you want about Jaws but it's not a stupid film it's not comparable to like the greater like genre of shark films it's so different and I would absolutely say it's worth watching I don't like you know it is a 1970s film it's not for it's not for everyone but I definitely would just go in and try not to have any preconceptions of it and just enjoy it for what it is because it's a great story at the end of the day. That's it. Like, that's it. It's just storytelling kind of at its purest. I know you can say that about Spielberg a lot of the time. And in terms of like, is it Spielberg's best picture? In my opinion, it is. I know like he has some really great ones, but I this will always be my favorite in terms of his actual like, is it does it showcase his best storytelling? Probably like maybe not. Maybe like you'd have to go with Schindler's. 
Actually, no, I would go with Jaws, to be honest. But mm. yeah, no, I think everyone should see Jaws at least once. It, 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 and it, like, it definitely has to be the first if you're going to pick one out of the franchise. I think that much is obvious. Yeah, yeah don't, don't start with Jaws 2. It relies heavily on the continuity. Yeah. It's a bit, of a bit heavy to jump into. Watch Jaws 3, though. You can absolutely watch that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Jaws 3, I think you can follow along with. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, and, and, and Andrew, then I guess just, just before we jump in, before we pass over to our six-year-old selves at this point in time, um, I just, is there anything you six, want to... <laughs> we're six years old when we... When we started the podcast, it's been going that long. We're the woman from Titanic. It's been eight to seven years. <laughs> uh, but Andrew, is there anything you want to say about like your relationship to Jaws in the six years that have changed or in the context of this season? Is well, there? We should probably disclose how much money we're getting from the Discovery Channel. To, uh, to, to, to like tie into Shark Week. I mean, we are the centerpiece of Shark Week. Mm. We are the impractical jokers. I mean, New that's media. the nickname we've had. Yeah, um, this is what we're doing. Um, we should also point out, by the way, that Andrew's suggestion that we do these release these it made it very it, difficult. They wouldn't announce. Everybody <laughs> online wanted to know when Shark Week yeah. was, but a Discovery Channel or just, they just played teases. it close to their chest. Yeah, I like, mean, wouldn't you like to know? Yeah, we, like I mean, and like, and it was great because we would Google. I would Google. Well, we would both Google. <laughs> we were both independently. Yeah, <laughs> um, this is how committed we were to this. Because me, I was like, I know it's so annoying, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. This is what this. Welcome to the group chat with myself and Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> it's mostly talking about why people you people want didn't. to know yeah. when is Shark Week. Yeah, and like you'd always get like the date of Shark Week is yet to be confirmed. We suspect it maybe, and like there were like people watching it, and there were people like doing like the red twine and being like, we suspect it may be late July, but it could also be early August. We're looking at the announcement and the schedule. They don't have anything planned until September, so they got space to fill. And it's like this doesn't help me at all. Um, but <laughs> it is worth noting in terms of Andrew's suggestion of doing this as part of Shark Week and doing this as part of the as part of like these episodes is why our release schedules maybe been a bit rougher lately than it has been um but also i like that it 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 sets andrew in conflict with jaws itself because andrew has over the course of this podcast repeatedly made the argument people should not watch movies during the summer if it's warm outside if the sun is shining you should be out there and you should be enjoying it jaws as we've discussed, I think in the episode that you're about to listen to is like radical as the first summer blockbuster because it's the one that like hit on the idea. Maybe people like air conditioning. Maybe people don't like being outside in the middle of summer. So summer went yeah, from being if, the if it's dump- oppressively hot. Yeah. Like, yeah, fair enough. You want to get get um, get out of it. But yeah, summer used to be a dumping zone for movies and then Jaws changed it. So Jaws is Andrew's nemesis. Andrew's like, people shouldn't go to cinema, go to the movies in summer. And Jaws is like, but wait, what if they did? Um, which I find kind Jaws of interesting. Jaws 1, Andrew 0. Jaws 1, Andrew 0, which is a, <laughs> something we may come back to at some point during the week. But is there anything you want to say about Jaws, Andrew? Anything jumping out at you? Like just to correct the record or to reflect on how older and wiser you've become in the six years since we talked about it? Um, I think our... our um I think our podcast maybe sounds a bit better now. I accept full responsibility for that. Uh, yes, it was like the third one we did, to be fair. Well, we got some advice from a, a, a friend who, who's, who, who does kind of a certain amount of certain, yes. like sound engineering. And it was very helpful. Sweeney, who joined, joined us for Bredemic. Yes. Have just by by insisting that we sleep in the same bed, we get <laughs> under the duvet yeah. and 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 record for maximum sound efficiency. Soft coverings are better. Um, 
But yes, that that just in case Emma's wondering why she's been tuning into myself and Andrew sitting in the same bed while podcasting. <laughs> it's it's, it's for it's for acoustic we, purposes. When whenever we record in Darren's house, um, we we set up like a little duvet for. <laughs> Yeah, back in the day. Yeah, back in the day where we'd have guests and stuff because we can't invite guests to the bedroom. Yeah. Um, like you know, you can't, or at least we can't do that in the first appearance. Um, but like we would record down the sitting room, but we'd have to build like again, like like teenage boys a duvet fort because that would help the sound, that would insulate the sound and prevent the hard edges. Jaws, I think, was recorded before we knew that. So yes, there are a lot of hard edges and echoing and stuff like that. So the audio quality may not be uh what the podcast is used to. But so, I, I, yeah, and 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 I'm 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 glad. I mean, I mean, I shouldn't really say that, that but the, there's the, the, there's not really anything there that's going to cancel us from <laughs> twenty sixteen. Yeah, it's it's, it's it's no it's not it's great. No Gran Torino. <laughs> no, 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 that didn't happen. <laughs> there never um, was a Gran Torino uh, episode. Andrew insists. Um, all right then so listeners we'll let you listen to our Jaws episode we'll be back tomorrow we'll be discussing Jaws 2 Emma will be rejoining us as co-host we have a fantastic guest the amazing Jess Dunn a shark exploitation expert will be joining us for that discussion on Wednesday uh, we will have the fantastic Joey Kyo jumping in there and on Friday uh, reteaming from T2 train spotting the sensational Jason Coyle will be joining us for the return um, so take care guys uh, enjoy the episode Thank you so much for embarking on this journey with us, Emma. Thank Bye. you, Emma. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 250, the IMDb Top 250 Movies of All Time podcast with myself, Darren Mooney, and... Andrew Quinn. Hello and welcome, listeners, old and new, mostly new, we're guessing. Yes, well, welcome to the new and improved. Yes, and rigorously and carefully structured podcast. We've been listening back to our yeah. first episode. This ain't your granddaddy's uh, IMDb Top 250 podcast. No. No, no, we're Sorry, shaking no. things up here. Um, so we had a bit of a listen to our last couple of podcasts. We think they're great, we think they're fun, we think they're playful or whatever, but we think we might need to impose a little bit more structure uh, on there. So this week we're going to give it an attempt to... So this week it's the behind the baseball... <laughs> inside baseball. Um, but, um, yeah, the VH1 behind the podcast. It turns out everybody working on the podcast hated everybody else. Yeah, everything was going fine after those first two episodes until... Until tragedy struck. Yeah. And it went all meta for <laughs> one episode that nobody for the liked. first one minute of the third episode. <laughs> okay. Uh, so anyway, just in case there are any listeners out here who are not familiar with the podcast, if this is your first time listening, or even if you've listened and forgotten, uh, what we're doing is we're tracking through the top 250 movies of all time, as listed by IMDb, picking a random one each week and watching it and talking about it. This week, we picked Andrew? Yes. Which is a little indie film that neither of us had ever heard of before we sat down to watch it. What's the name of the guy's... Steve Simon Simon Spellburn Simon Spellman Spellburn 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 yeah. Spellburn uh, I haven't heard anything else He did Etty Yes uh, Et Et Yeah Et Et The movie with the The immigrant story it's, Yes It's a story about an immigrant who arrives in America and has to find a place in the world It's a very touching small scale thing Yeah He He He, he, he also did Um Schindler's List. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are talking about Steven Spielberg. Yes, we are. Just to be clear, and we have both seen Jaws. 
Um, yeah. Which is, is interesting, because that's one of the joys of the 250s, that sometimes you get films neither of us have seen, sometimes you get films one of us haven't seen, sometimes you get films that we've all seen multiple times. Yeah, yeah. Well, you will always meet people who haven't seen these movies. But I, I, I think with the likes of Jaws, they're aware that... That it exists. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. They, they have some concept of, 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 of that it is a movie and that they haven't seen it and that they're missing something. And that it involves a shark. Which, by the way, if you haven't seen this movie, you are. You are missing something. Uh, but we'll get to is it worth watching shortly. I suspect that we'll both agree on that answer. Yeah. Um, already trying to do around the structure. Everybody else in the, everybody else in the <laughs> podcast, everybody else in the world will as well. Uh, so no, so what were your so when did you first see the film, Andrew? When did I first see the film? Oh, I I I would imagine it would have been at some point in the nineties when it was almost appropriate for me to watch that movie. I, I, I think my parents were more careful than some in terms of keeping me away from inappropriate, <laughs> inappropriate movies. Although, um, did, did, did you mention that this is a 12? This is a 12. In the UK, it's rated as 12, so it's available to wow. any... Any minor over the age of 12 years old can go into a video store and buy this one. Uh, but there are some wonderful shots of people who have been mauled by sharks. There's some uh, great shots of Roy Schneider, sir. Not Roy Schneider. Uh, <laughs> Rob Schneider. Sorting <laughs> <laughs> through, uh, through a book of shark attacks. There are sort of legs. He was just a normal small town sheriff until one morning he woke up as... Rob Schneider. Um, yes. I'm sorry, I had to. There's a much, much worse film there waiting for us. <laughs> uh, but yes, I mean, and even if you haven't seen, I think you're familiar with the great John Williams score. The dun 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 dun. Yes. Which the movie drops immediately, like it starts on. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. So here's some nice underwater photography, and uh, also this piano music that you're gonna like. Yeah, some lovely kind of. I, I imagine it was stock Carl Reef photography. I don't know. I suspect Spielberg probably shows. I don't know, though. Carl Reef photography? Well, uh, well, it's not Coral Reef photography. It's just Reef no. photography. Well, it's not Coral Reef. Speaking of Reef, there is a much worse movie called The Reef, and it's like, it's, it's, it's a, an Australian or New Zealand version of Jaws, and it's it's not good. Don't watch that. If watch this instead. Watch this instead. Um, there's also another one coming out of Blake Lively called The Shadows as well, in which Blake Lively is, is menaced by a giant shark. Stop making movies, people. <laughs> Stop making new movies and watch old movies. That's the message yeah. of this podcast. <laughs> That's what we're taking away. Unless we talk about a new movie. Yeah, in which case, you should probably go see that. Oh, by the way, we're getting paid by the people who make these movies. Yes. Um, Universal Studios really want to draw some publicity for Jaws. Yeah, they haven't been doing so good so well. Like, no, they, I mean, they, they, yeah, they're, 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 when is the last time they, they made a good movie? I mean, so I heard the name like Jaws. I thought, I thought it was a bomb spin-off. I thought yeah. it was a spin-off about that guy who killed people by necking them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and he. Which, by the way, is a great James Bond villain. Just in case you needed the film, the franchise's sort of heterosexual uh, masculinity challenge, like the bad guy, the ultimate bad guy is a guy who kills people by effectively mining, necking, necking other men. Yeah, 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 yeah. But 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 they they sort that out in the subsequent. Um, uh, is it the spy who loved me? No, where he, he, where he gets a girlfriend. Yeah. So he's yeah. no longer a threat to masculinity by taking men into corners and netting them. Jaws, no homo. Yeah. Um, that may be the most succinct analysis that we've ever offered on this podcast, and I feel sorry that we're now going to talk about the actual film, Joel. Yeah, just, <laughs> that, 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 that was also the subtitle for this movie. 
that because, because <laughs> there is a strong, so there is a Semitic element to it. There uh, is. But I also read yeah. something called Jew. I also read the um, singular, by the way, not four. But I read an interesting article in the Hebrew Times, which argued that Spielberg had constructed the film as a as an extended metaphor for the Jewish American experience. What? At the point where he nicknamed the shark Bruce uh, in recognition of his lawyer, which is traditionally seen as a Jewish profession. Uh, it's, it's, Bruce doesn't sound like a a Jewish name. No, um, I'll go and get the I'll actually get the name of the uh, of the lawyer now. Um, but basically, um, are, we, are we playing the to the fact team? Okay, to the fact machine team. Machine. It turns out that yes, the Steven Spielberg's lawyer was named Bruce Raymer. Um, but the argument in the Jewish Times uh, article, which I will, uh, the Jerusalem Times article, which I will link when we post this podcast to prove that it exists, uh, was that basically it's the experience of American communities towards uh, immigrants who are perhaps Jewish in nature and how they tend to treat them as outsiders and sharks, in inverted commas, referring to lawyers. Uh, I thought it was a tenuous read. I thought it was a very tenuous read. Uh, so, we don't need to summarize the, uh, the plot, because everybody's vaguely familiar with it. A shark menaces uh, an island community off the coast of New York. Um, and the only people who can stop it are a combination of a shark expert, local sheriff, and a fisherman who may or may not be Ahab reincarnated. Um, yeah. And hilarity ensues. Is it worth watching, Andrew? It certainly is worth watching. For even even for the reasons you just outlined, which is number one, Chief Brody. Yeah. Number two, Hooper. Number three, Clint. Quint. 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 I went the whole movie thinking it was Clint. <laughs> it's just so happy. Yeah, yeah. It seems like he should have a name like Clint. Qu- or Qu- Flint. Okay. Yeah, Quinn. Quinn. Quint. He's not a Quint. <laughs> He's not a Quint at all. Speaking speaking from someone who's almost a Quint. <laughs> Um, so yes, and I would also recommend it if you haven't seen it. Steve. Speaking from someone, that's never an idiom. Speaking as someone, as someone who has seen the film, um, I would recommend definitely everyone seeing it. If you've seen it before, it's worth watching again. It holds up very well. I think. That in mind, we're going to move on to the spoiler zone where we talk about the film with spoilers. All right, so. Um, what we talked about before is because Jaws has so many memorable scenes, what we're probably going to do is we're probably going to talk about themes, first of all. Yeah. Right, so what, what the film was about. What was the film about for you, Andrew? A few things. Uh-huh. Um, I think the, the interesting thing that you, you mentioned just there when, when, um, uh, when, you, when, when you brought up uh, the Hebrew Times article, I don't know if I saw that, um, but definitely the, the whole idea of being other. Yes. Or being an outsider, um, and not belonging, being excluded, being isolated, being bored, as well. Because, being bored. Yeah, no, 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 I, 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 I feel like um, there's this idea that um, that Chief Brody has 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 left the city to um, to 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 have a quiet life, but I I, I feel like there is a certain kind of something like a yearning in him for for and 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 it might it might just be me that's thinking this but it, like like one of his first lines is um his wife says uh, be careful um and he says in this town 
as, as in like in, in this um, in this quiet tick, yeah. Uh, so one yeah, where nothing ever happens. Well, he talks about that on the boat as well when he goes out with Hooper and the Aurora, and he's like, you know, in New York, people mug you, they get shot, there's violence, and something. Here, there's not been one murder in 26 years, which, by the way, is a very specific. Very specific number. It's not like 25 years or 30 years. It's like no, 26, 26 years. After that pistol shooting murder incident. But beyond that, <laughs> it's completely safe. Was, oh, yeah, yeah. It was, it was just presumably, like, how long has he been sheriff? It's not been 27 years. <laughs> <laughs> there were some teething issues. Yeah, yeah. It started all out in the air. Well, I think the idea is basically that he's new. Got all the gangs off the island. But no, I'm like, I get that idea of boredom, but I, th- I think it ties into the idea of masculinity uh, and stuff like that. But we're, you're talking about the idea yes. of outsiders, right? So we should probably go back to the outsiders. Thank you for saying masculinity, by the way. We'll, we'll we're going to go back to it. But you talk about otherness and outsiders. Like, there's this great idea of islanders and non-islanders, which is... Yes! Like, the first, the, the first killing happens. It's a guy who gets drunk. He goes off with a girl. She gets eaten by a shark. They find her remains on the beach. But Brody's having a conversation with him while he's walking. And the guy's like, look, yes. I don't live on the island. I just come and visit, but because my parents are born on the island, and even they don't live here now, I'm still an islander. Yeah, he specifically says so. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He has to clarify his status. Yeah. Like. It's to put this like a class thing as well. And, oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And even though Brody lives on the island and is the chief of police of the island, he's not an islander. No, he's a blowing basically. You can you can see in the kind of town hall meeting. Um, where they're discussing possibly closing down the beach, maybe for as little as 24 hours. That before I never agreed to that. Sorry, 24 hours. Before the meeting starts, um, there is there's this moment where locals are talking amongst themselves and they're all um, gabbing and yammering. And Chief Brody is... is yeah. His, all the shoulders are turned against him, yeah. and he's he's kind of almost feeling like should I should I pip in? Do I have anything to add here? Do these people even care? Yeah, well, there's, there's that sequence you're talking about. There's a wonderful moment where they're because they're having the conversation while they're walking through the halls, and they're basically they're talking together, and Brody is sort of following behind them. But Brody bangs his head off a signpost that's hanging from one of the doors, which is like it's it's completely how how much he lacks authority in this in this island environment. Mm-hmm. How he knows his way around. Um, how little the locals seem to yeah. expect him as well, and 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 how 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 little um, actually that 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 relates to what he's saying in the boat because he's talking about New York and how it seems like the reason he came to Amity Island was because because he thought in a small village like Amity Island he could make a difference in a big city like New York he can't. But what he what he seems to realise is that it. It's almost like colonialism, like like he's come in and, and tried to impose something, and realizes that that. Which is funny because, like, literally the first thing he does when he gets to the office is he tells his secretary that she needs to change her filing system. She needs to keep the old stuff off his desk. And she's not. She's not listening. No, at all. Polly, Polly is talking about uh, karate. Yeah, the kids uh, karateing the the white yeah. picket fences, which, which is a great image. Yeah, which which made me think that this is the same universe as the, the karate kids, uh-huh. that the Cobra Kai kids uh-huh. are, are are busting up all of the fences down along the reef. I like the idea that modern Hollywood has conditioned Andrew to imagine that all these classic 70s and 80s films exist in some sort of shared cohesive universe. Well, we, 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 I, I think we can agree that, it, that, it, that it's part of the Et universe. Sorry, hold on, I'm getting something. E.T. Um, 
But we, um, yeah, my, so my, so my, uh, my producer is speaking my earpiece. There was a moment, there's a moment uh, later in the film as well where uh, Brody's, uh, he's not showing the waters, but he's playing with the, he's tying the ropes or something. He's loading the gun, he's getting his revolver. Yes. You can see over his head, you can see a shooting star that's very clearly been animated in the panel. And then there's another establishing shot on the boat as well against sunset, and the shooting star is still there as well. Uh, which is a lovely shot. It's a lovely composition. They twice put it in. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I wonder what the trajectory of the star should be that it appears behind Brody at one stage and then circles back around to be visible at the you know around the boat itself. Well, it, what, what what it's saying is um, coming to cinemas soon. <laughs> it's Close Encounters followed by E.T. Yeah. Um, look, it's even got Richard Dreyfuss in it. And yeah, one, one, one of the shooting. Sorry, <laughs> it's even got Richard Dreyfuss in it. It does. By the way, Richard Dreyfuss. It's fantastic. Isn't Amazing. It? it really is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we were talking about the the outsider thing. Uh, let's talk about masculinity for a sec. Before before we do that, I think I have the answer to your question. What is my question? One shooting star. Yes. Was close encounters. Oh, and the other shooting star was ET e. because they're different aliens. Ah, Baboon. Yes. Forget the Jaws thing. This might be the most cogent piece of analysis that we've had on this podcast ever. Fan theory. Yeah, boom, go with it. It's not even a theory. I mean, it's just fact. It's right there. Yeah, exactly. It's just there to read. Yeah. All right, so masculinity. Masculinity. I had, I had written down masculinity as one of the themes. Um, because the first that we've already spoken about is this whole kind of small town. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and she also, yeah, she has a conversation on the beach where she's like, what, and where Brody's wife is like, when do I get to be considered an island? Never, darling, you never. <laughs> this is the one who Andrew was rooting to be eaten by a shark. Yeah, as soon as she said that, because I've, 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 I've never really had a great sense of community, and I've always kind of like been transplanted into different small to medium to large towns. Um, and yeah, that, that woman saying, that, yeah, 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 that woman saying, you'll never be one of us, basically, <laughs> in the most blase way. Yeah, she was very casual about the insult that she was landing. Oh yeah, because um, she's a motel owner, you know. She has business ideas. Speaking of blase, um, the the when Chrissy gets, are we in the spoiler zone? By the way, we are in the spoiler zone. When Chrissy gets eaten, um, and the next morning. Uh, sorry, sorry. I, 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 I know we're going off the thematic discussion one moment, well, but, 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 I, but I didn't, I didn't mean to, to um, I didn't want to miss this. Was that the guy who is taking Chief, um, Chief Brody to the beach is saying, "I guess you drowned or something," and it is so blasé. It's like, <laughs> "Guess you drowned." Happens all the time around here. Yeah, yeah. You're looking up with a like, girl, she drowned. Yeah, it's like, did she run away? Oh, no, sir. She drowned. I think she drowned. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, them. Can I get back to my friends here? Yeah, yeah. It's like, and she, she probably, presumably the audience is like, oh, gosh. I thought the girl was eaten by a shark. <laughs> I was so glad to find out that she was only dead. Yeah, and not mangled or eaten. Yeah. Uh, which is funny, right, because... We were talking about masculinity, yeah. Yes. And it's a theme that I think is seated even in those Very even strong. in those early scenes, right? Even yes. Yeah. You have that scene where she gets she gets attacked and mauled, right? But she gets mauled, her male partner is basically impotent. Like he can't he can't swim, he can barely undress himself. He's supposed to be going in and they're supposed to be having sex. He's unable to do it. He ends up passed out on the beach. 
and then able to perform. They s- still managed to make that unexpected as well. Yeah, which they, 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 um, when Chrissy gets eaten, because uh, he he says, "What's your name anyway?" Yeah. Says Chrissy, and the audience thinks, "Oh, she has a name. She has a name. Therefore, she's not going to get eaten." No, but she, uh, but guess she, what? Yes. she does get eaten. She does get. Um, eaten. But yeah, this this idea of masculinity bubbles through the film, and it's particularly relevant as it as it occurs to the three main characters, right? So you have Absolutely. Cooper, who is obviously perhaps the most uh, feminine of characters, perhaps the most I the, least so. the least sort of. I, I, I think what 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 happens is it's it's a kind of a penis measuring contest that's uh, um, that's in, that's. Oh, don't worry, we're going to mention penis a lot. We are going to mention penis a lot, penis. Because the uh, shark is basically a giant penis. So, yeah, it, it seems to be something that, that, even though it's hinted at earlier on, it becomes explicit when Robert Shaw's character, not Clint, <laughs> Clint, <laughs> which I should remember, <laughs> um, when, he, when he makes it so, he, he makes it very overt, because he, he is very much an islander. Yeah. Um, and it, it's really weird. Right? Questions the masculinity of anyone who isn't. Yes, and he has this conversation, and he's like, "You all know me and what I do." And I, as we were watching the film, I was watching because initially I thought he's a fisherman. That's how they know what he does, right? <laughs> and I watched the film more and more. I was like, Actually, what does he? What, do? what does Quint do? Yeah. If only, if only, if only before we went into a shack, we had a look from the outside, <laughs> so we could see the sign like, for the business. Yeah, like, it's like you think he's a fisherman, but he seems to have a very large collection of like boiled shark jaws. I, be- uh, I have he a theory. He them from his boat. Yeah, and he, yeah, you have a theory actually. Tell me what your theory about what Quint does on the island. He's making some kind of shark product. Vodka, <laughs> <laughs> I think. Was so it. yeah, yeah, because because he says. He asked for apricot brandy as one of, as, as one of his requirements because maybe he's thinking of a special summer like uh, edition yeah. Yeah, of, of his shark vodka. Um, and then he hands them shot glasses and says, Drink up. I made them myself. We, sorry, that's a terrible <laughs> impression. Any, any, any impression of Quint needs to be uh, very gravelly and at some point you can't understand what he's saying. So it's like, but you, but you recognise the authority of what he's yeah. saying. Take a shot glass. It is one zero. I made it myself. Yeah. Uh, I think that's actually that's pretty much perfect, Andrew. Oh, thank you. But uh, yeah, so he hasn't brought me the thing because he he has like a shark jaw hanging. His shark jaw is hanging first of all all over his office. Mm. Second of all, all over his boat. Yeah. And you're like, this is not like a commercial fisherman because I don't imagine there's that much of an industry in Amity for like shark-based meat products. And it's interesting as well, because as you say, he says, you know who I am and you know what I do. Yeah. No? <laughs> do not. But I think, again, that plays into the insider-outsider thing, where all the islanders obviously know yeah. At this point, any islander who doesn't know would not ask, because they would be worried that they'd be confused for a non-islander. Yeah, they just take it for granted. Yeah. Um... But yeah, so basically talking about like masculinity and stuff, right? Because um, you have the scientist who's Hooper, you have the manly man who's Quint, and then you have Brody. And the film is, and this is interesting, right? Because he's played by, he's played by uh, Roy Scheider. Um, have I got the name right? Scheider? Scheider, Roy Scheider. <laughs> Let's just check that it's not Rob Schneider. Yeah. <laughs> Apologies, Rob Schneider. Uh, if you're listening, big fan of Rob, Rob, Rob Schneider. Um... He was good in Demolition. He was, yeah. Not, 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 
I'm sorry. I just made you made you made you go to the fuck machine willy nilly. Yeah. I do beg your pardon. Don't worry. We're only gonna play the anthem for that. One. <laughs> no. But anyway, uh, Roy like by, by the way, Rob Schneider. Um, if you're was, you're, yeah, yeah, I know that you are also in. Judge Dredd, also with Sylvester Stallone. Nice try trying to trick me into thinking that's the same movie. <laughs> Differentiated in my mind. The key is Sandra Bullock. Key is Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock is in one, not in the other. Yeah. Actually, and Judge. Which Judge? In, um... In, uh, She's the one in, uh, She's in Demolition Man. Woman, I should say. No, no, she's she's in Judge Red. It's Sandra Bullock. You're thinking Ashley Judge. Ashley Judge. What? It's Ashley Judge and Judge Red. Believe so. That's Ashley, that's some great casting. Ashley Judge Red. Ashley Judge. Yeah, that's it. You should just. There. By, okay. by the way, speaking of masculinity, not very many. Speaking of women, not very many women in this movie. No, which I think is a thematic sort of point. Yeah, but, and it makes sense that there aren't because this is all about masculinity, and I think as as well. The theme of masculinity and otherness relates because I think any young man um, who's felt um, who's felt different or other or insecure that definitely bleeds into masculinity because you you want you want to be one of the men. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um. So we, 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 it, the two themes fit very well together. Well. And I mean, it should be like it's, it's even on the poster. Like it's the poster is a giant shark coming up out of the bottom of the poster towards a young woman who is swimming in the water, which is perhaps the most like phallic-centric poster for a major blockbuster I have ever seen. It's basically a giant penis traveling through the water towards an uh, unsuspecting woman. You thought penis? I, you, yeah, you thought shark. I thought boobies. Okay. <laughs> how, do you, how do you get when, when, when there's a naked woman? Well, yeah, but on the poster. You can't have a naked woman on the poster. That'd violate like. Uh, there were definitely there were, there was there was there was there was definitely definite nudity in the start of the film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and each twelve-year-old. Because Lord knows we shouldn't be worried about the gore or the violence. It's the boobies we have to worry about. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's, that's the thing over there in the states. It is. It's really yeah. messed up about the MPAA. Is the fascination or the fixation upon sex as more harmful to minors? Oh, violence or graphic and gore. bad words as well. Yes. I I I I, I had. This bizarre experience of watching American History X at about seven in the evening um, after work one time when I was in the States. And, um, oh, by the way, well, what's the best way of saying that? When somebody says in the States, I always think of um, that movie Intermission. Okay. Very Irish way of talking about America. Because yeah, it's like we're close. We're so close that we dropped the United, you know? Yeah. It's like, because the United, you know, has other connotations here. Exactly. Um, so, in, Amer- in North America... Yes, in- they, were, they were showing American history acts, and there was all of the violence, and I believe the curb stamp... Uh, which hopefully isn't a spoiler, um, because what's a curb Nazis, yes. Um, <laughs> it might involve some gratuitous and horrifying violence. Which is, yeah, yeah. Terrifying it sequence. is a terrifying sequence. Well, that was shown. What wasn't was the bad language. So it was dubbed. Um, presumably Edward Norton, 
um, has to come in and, and, and read the line of ADR where he says, I'm not going to take that bull spit. <laughs> I don't know where, 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 Dumb that in. Yeah, where he's basically made into Ned Flanders. Yeah. But he's a neo-Nazi. And well, it's funny you should mention the dubbing or changing um, of or ADR of sort of bad language lines. I think my personal favourite is from The Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. You know, the, it's, which is a great film, and we're not going to get into spoilers. Uh, we may talk about it at some point in the podcast. Yeah. But there's a line where John Goodman screams at the top of his voice, This is what happens when you f*** a stranger in the ass. And don't worry, we're going to bleep that. Uh, and in the APR version of the, uh, the scene, somebody called John Goodman back in to film this, not to film the sequence, but to dub the sequence, so that he shouted, This is what happens when you meet a stranger in the Alps. <laughs> without any other changes to the scene, without any other context for it, it just seems like John Goodman really doesn't There's like There's so many people out there who have only seen APR movies. Yeah. Um, yeah, who, whose only exposure to movies is watching them on cable in the United States of America and thinking, oh, yeah, that's just the way people talk. Yeah, I could just drop that. That's a colloquialism. I could just drop yeah. that in, yeah. I wish people in the real world said, um, this were, is what happens when you're a little less chorus. Yeah, this is what happens when you meet a stranger in the Alps. Um, <laughs> it's what people shout when they get angry. It's just an emotional outlet. Um, I still say fudge and sugar occasionally, so I can't really complain. Yeah, I, I like I like to say um, whoopsie f- Daisy. All right, <laughs> Andrew is hardcore for this podcast. <laughs> but um, no, I'm talking about like the theme of masculinity, right? So the the idea of Brody, I love how Brody is repeatedly uh, emasculated. Brody is made out to be not a very good man, which is ironic given he's played by uh, Roy Schneider. Roy Schneider, and he's because. Uh, Roy Scheider's a very manly man. He's got a square jaw. He's got an American hero's face. He's got, you know, he's skinny. He's got, uh, he's in most of his movies, he's got presence. He played the lead in, like, Sequest DSV. But in the first half hour of Jaws, he's just made to seem so small and so inadequate. Yeah. Like, he can't even repair his... The first thing, first time you meet his kids, they cut their hands on the swing set that he still hasn't fixed. You know? Yeah. Um, and then he's, like, when he's, even when he's going off on the boat, he's talking about he forgot to fix the pipes or something like that. He tells his wife not to use, can't remember what it is she's not to use, but he hasn't fixed it yet because he's a terrible husband. He's playing catch-up, yeah. but he has the advantage of having that most masculine rank of chief of police. But everybody completely ignores him, which is great, and I like that, like, when he does... I, f- I feel like Quint gives him a certain amount of slack, but it's only in comparison Super. We'll talk about it in a moment. Yeah, um, and that's I don't think Quinn fancies his chances um, uh, against the two of them. Yeah, so so suddenly, suddenly decides. Yeah, I'm gonna pick, pick one, one to bully and one to ingratiate myself with. And I'm going to go with uh, the one who looks like Ronnie Scheider uh, yeah. to ingratiate myself with. But no, but even in the, the early scenes, so like where he's running around about the shark attack, he's continually hassled by locals who are worried about small things like cars parked in loading areas or children stealing bikes or kids karateing fence posts. But his response in every situation is not to say, look, I'm the chief of police here. I've actually got important stuff to be doing. Shut up. 
His point is just to either... Which, which is how community policing ought to work. Ought to work. Well, you know, you have to find me doing that. You should have the ability to just say, look, go and file a form. Instead, he, he actually... Go file a form. Shark time. Yeah. I've <laughs> got actual stuff to worry about. Um, instead, he just sort of, he either ignores them or tries to run away. Like, when he's walking to the shop to buy the signs to make the, the shark warning signs with each clothes signs, you just see him running repeatedly away from the, the islanders with their petty complaints instead of just telling them yeah. that more important stuff to be doing. Or when he's on the... One lad has a bike rental place. Yeah. And people keep breaking glass. Yeah. Punk kids. Yeah. But one of these punk kids just got eaten by a shark, so leave me alone. Yeah. Enough to handle here. Or even when he's when he's shoving the boat and the mayor shows up, and we're going to talk about the mayor. In a the minute. mayor. We love the mayor. We do. But he shows up himself. <laughs> In a car, it's great. He's taking the ferry across the bay. I presume it's a shortcut or whatever. But uh, Ooh, the Jersey tops. Yeah, but that's it. <laughs> this car pulls up onto the ferry as it's about to leave, and you can tell it's like the driver is signaling, "Look, don't let the sheriff get on that ferry without us." Because and then like a clown car, everybody gets out. It's like the mayor, the the uh, who is also the chief realtor on the island, which is quite nice. He drives a car labeled Vaughn Real Estate. Yeah. Um, there's the local reporter as well, who is very much is, in bed. Yeah, is, is that who it was? With the big glasses and the mustache. Yeah, he's in charge of the local paper. Okay. Um, he's also played by the writer of the film as well. Oh, um, I didn't realize that that was the same person. Yeah, it is later on when he talks about when they cast the small shark and he's like, I want this going out to the AP or whatever. He's, he's the local newspaper person. He's also talking about the ad with the bounty for the shark as well uh, at the meeting, where uh, Orwin Shark is like, maybe you shouldn't publish that. And he's like, look, <laughs> I don't tell you how to do your job. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I recognize all the times when he was a reporter. I thought that was a different guy. No, it's on the boat, he's definitely he's teaming up with the mayor, and they're like, uh, This has been confirmed by the fact machine. This has been confirmed by the fact machine. Excellent. Okay. Um, and then there's also the coroner there as well. But what they do, and it's a great, because it, it would be a very boring scene, because it's just exposition and dialogue, but Spielberg shoots it in a way that is incredibly claustrophobic and yeah. incredibly frightening. And, and very emasculating. Because you know he's afraid of the water. Yeah. And you can tell the mayor was probably like, I know where it's a great place to have this conversation with the guy. Yeah. Let's, let's have it on this corner of him and where his back is turned to water and he's already at, on edge. Yeah, and there's no fence at the front of the boat as well. Um, and it's great because the scene is shot where they, they push him in, they fence him in, and he gets gradually close to the camera as well. So as the scene gets more intense, mm. and as the mayor, who by the way has a fantastic wardrobe. Oh, his wardrobe. The mayor is amazing. And he shows up with a jacket with anchors on it. Little anchor print. Little white anchor print on it, which is amazing. Um, I want one myself, even though I don't live in a seaside community. Can we discuss for a moment his, 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 his wardrobe? Because mo- mo- mostly it's the anchor print. Well, in fairness, there's also the pinstripe, but it's not... There is summer print. Summer print. That's summer, 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 summer stripe. Yeah, it's like the wallpaper inside... With a salmon shirt. Yeah, and, and, and a tie which is sort of striped, isn't it? It's like blue, white, and red striped. Oh, yeah. And just to tie it all together. Yeah. Because we know why they will look ridiculous. Because his, his jacket, this is this this is his jacket. He, he, he doesn't go for navy, charcoal, black, uh, black or, no, yeah, no. And blue, like I think he goes for um, stripes that each represent some part of summer. Um, <laughs> every everything in the jacket says summer. Yeah. By the by the way, if 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 you're interested in summer and jaws, um, the comedian Howard Kramer is your guy. He he will he will argue with anybody who says that there is any better movie than Jaws. Ever. Ever. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. His, his um, recurring segment on the podcast, uh, to, who charted? 
is Jaws is better. I don't think they do it anymore. He also had a podcast with um, the very good Paul F. Tompkins oh, yeah. called um, Analyze Fish, and that's spelled F I S H. Oh, the band. Uh, no F I S H. Oh, F I uh, Analyze Fish, P H I S H, was an original uh, podcast by um, Scott Aukerman and the late Harris Whittles about uh, the Banfish, where uh, Harris Whittles was trying to get Scott Aukerman to like the Banfish. And then there was a um, spin-off podcast under the same feed called Analyze Fish, which was um, two people who love the movie Jaws, Paul F. Tompkins and Howard Kramer. It's a little, a little... Andrew is our podcast expert here. <laughs> Andrew is very much our podcast specialist here. Um, I have to be here for some reason. <laughs> but, uh, no, Vaughn is great. Mayor Vaughn is great because he's the real monster of the film, basically. Well, according to Howard Kramer, he's the real hero of the movie. He's the real hero. Explain to me how Mayor Vaughn is the real hero. Because Howard Kramer um, uh, wants to embrace the idea of a summer. Yeah. And I believe that summer spelled S-U-M-M-A-H. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and Mayor Vaughn is the person who wants the... The, the summer to go ahead. Or... I believe there's a video on Funny or Die oh. with Harry Kramer and Zoe Deschanel talking about summer and explaining how, how Larry Vaughn is, is, the, is the real hero. Because okay. yeah. um, I was watching, I was thinking, this man is a monster. This man is a terrible human being. Funny that. Yeah, we, the, I, I, I think Darren and I agree. The trailer uh, seems to indicate that um, the shark is, 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 is the actual villain of the piece. Is the actual villain of the piece. No, he's just a rogue. Yeah, a lovable rogue shark. He's just a henchman. Uh, he has no, no cognizance or awareness. Exactly. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, there, there may be sequels to this movie. That explain that. That was notably Jaws for the Revenge, in which the shark that blows up at the end of Jaws somehow comes back from the dead and starts avenging himself um, on the survivors of the original film. Oh. Yes, and it's great because in the film, there's no explanation for how the shark has come back from the dead. In the novelization, it's explained that the shark is brought back using voodoo magic. Oh. Which is just amazing. And well, yeah, but that stands to reason, really. Yeah. Like, the, the, the tiger shark at the beginning has just come from Louisiana. I mean, it's all tied together. It's, yeah. it's a great setup and payoff. It's like the wonderful shot Spielberg does of the auction tax, where you're like, this is going to be important later. You're like, yeah. that Louisiana play. Yeah, that, that was relating to Joe's yeah. Ford. Yeah, starring Michael Caine uh, and his famous anecdote <laughs> when he was doing the press conference. <laughs> yeah, where, where he, was, uh, he was doing a press conference and he was asking questions. It was obviously he hadn't seen the film. And a reporter actually stuck up their hand and said, Mr. Caine, have, have you actually seen Jaws for The Revenge? To which Michael Caine replied, No, I have not. But by all accounts, it is quite terrible. <laughs> I have, however, seen the house that it paid for. And that, by all accounts, is quite lovely. Um, which is just the best slumming it answer that any actor has ever given to anything. Fantastic. Um, I've checked out. Yeah. Must be here contractually. <laughs> <laughs> Think about the interior design of that luxury house. Um, when you sign on for the sequel, Jaws 5, The Revengening. I've never seen such terrible drapes. <laughs> Fix these. I'll do another With Jaws. my Jaws money. Yeah, I'll do another Jaws sequel. Uh, which is remarkable, because Jaws is one of those films you don't think about as having a sequel, but instead it has three of them, and they're all terrible. It also inspired a generation of knockoffs. In- I, 
I assume that Irvin Kirchner did the second one. <laughs> <laughs> because of course he did. He, he, he did all the sequels. Um, That's uh, why Jaws 2 is the Empire Strikes Back of Sharks movies. Uh, no. I'm, I'm the Robocop 2. Did Irvin Kirchner do Robocop 2? I believe so. Okay. To the fact machine. Good call, Andrew. We're back from the fax machine. Fax, not the fax machine. The fax machine. Do the fax machine. <laughs> uh, it turns out Erwin Kirshner did direct Robocop. Get in. Um, which is funny, because the, the creator difficulties I remember with that one are involved the writer Frank Miller, um, who described it as his only experience with Hollywood before doing Sin City. And who was scared away by the process. That was a dark movie. That was <laughs> did, did, did Irvin Kershner want it to be darker? Did Frank Miller want it to be darker? I'm guessing Frank I, Miller. I'm guessing they both wanted it to be darker, and the studio probably said, ah, if, if turn him into a toy, into a toy figure. Um, so. there was, yeah, there was, there was like, it, 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 was, it was more bleak than Robocop, but also tied in more to kids. And, and, and um, I, I believe Leonard Maltin had, had this complaint with us, that, that, that it seemed to be marketed towards kids, just they even put a kid in. Yeah. But I feel like having the kid in that movie just, so just made it more dark. Yeah. Um, uh, having, have, having, having the child... Um, be head of a criminal organization and using um, hateful homophobic speech. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not even going to say it so that you can bleep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it is. So somehow this is how dark Detroit is that the adorable kid villain is a monster. Turns out they're right. Yeah, <laughs> very prescient movie. Yeah. But um, no. So back to the theme of masculinity because we seem to have segued. <laughs> oh, excuse me. <laughs> uh, but segue smoothly back to the theme. We certainly will. Because the idea is, and I like this idea, oh, is that Brody gone. He's raised a finger. He wants to say As the resident podcast um, uh, specialist, I don't know if you can even call me that. If you want a great, great, great impression of Urban Kirshner, check out Super Ego and just Matt Gorley. Matt Gorley. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic um, Irvin Kirshner impression um, also um, does um, a movie podcast called I Was There Too. Oh, cool. Oh, and, and, the, and the second movie podcast uh, called James Bonding, which is all about James Bond movies. Which I've heard, I've heard great things about. I think yeah. you're a big fan of it. Yeah. Um, not, yeah. Not enough of them. <laughs> not James Bond podcasts. Yeah. Um, so yeah, these are things you should be listening to when you're not listening to us, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the and speaking of James Bond, uh, masculinity was a the theme in this movie. <laughs> yes, uh, which we circled back around to, uh, truly enough. Now, I, I like the idea of... Um, Masterfully, no? Yeah, it's, it's just, I can't even see the scenes because it's so flawless. Um, but I like the idea of Brody as a figure who should be masculine but who basically has to regress to boyhood, right? And this is one of the things I really like about the film is that it structures two very different halves. Um, and we'll probably talk about this when we talk about the legacy of the film a bit later. Yeah. Um, but the film is structured in such a way that Brody has to recover his childhood, his boyhood. He has to go back to being a boy before he could be a man. Because he's, he's emasculating his powers. He's afraid of the water. He, um, there's one point where he's reading the book about sharks and his wife shows up closes the books and says you'll have nightmares tonight while giving him like whatever 
candy, but it's very much like giving a small child a hot chocolate or something. It's like, here, comfort yourself. And the way the scene's shot as well, he's rolled up in a ball sitting on the chair and she's sort of comforting him behind him. You you got hot chocolate when being put to sleep as a child? Yeah. No, you just didn't. got a kick in the face. But it's okay. You had a very, you had a very privileged, I had a very privileged, happy childhood. But it's okay because your parents didn't let you watch Jaws, which would have traumatized you. Exactly. But then, and then even later on, where she's walking him to the boat to what say goodbye, um, she sort of you had a bed. She's presented almost as a mother figure, uh, in that she's worried about what he's going to have for lunch and what he's going to have for dinner and stuff before he gets mm-hmm. on the boat with Quint. It's like packing up his little bag and sending him on his first adventure away from home. Yeah, uh, which is remarkable. Um, and then he goes out to sea, and he's he's very much he's the child. And this this is an interesting interesting read, which I do owe a bit of credit to uh, Matthew Belink over at Overthinking it because he by the way this stuff out. Who wrote the Hebrew Times there? I don't know. Editorial? Yeah, it was an editorial. So we'll we'll it'll be don't worry, it'll be included in the. It'll be on the show notes. Yes, it'll be on the show notes. Um, but Matthew Belink pointed out quite astutely that when they go out on the boat, um, they adopt a family dynamic, right? So he has to go out in the sea to find himself. Um, where Quint is basically the father, um, mm-hmm. Hooper is essentially the mother. They're the two adults on the boat. They get tasked with their responsible things. Like Quint is in charge of killing the fish. Hooper is in charge of steering the boat. And at one point, when uh, Quint tells Brody to start ch- chumming the waters, ch- uh, Brody's like a little ten-year-old going, "Why do I have to do it? Why can't Why can't Hooper do it?" And Quint's like, "Hooper's steering the boat. Uh, he's like, he's doing grown-up work." Um, and there's another point where uh, Quint is teaching Brody how to tie a knot, because that's one of the symbolisms of uh, one of the ideas of being an adult is that, and it's how Hooper proves that he's taken on a boat. Yeah, there's scouts doing a merit badge earlier on in the yeah, movie as well. Yeah. That's one of these ideas of becoming a child and becoming a man. And then Brody sort of Brody learns, and it's fascinating because the shark first menaces them on the boat at the point where Brody successfully ties the knot. That's the point at which the shark Ooh. first shows up. And that's sort of like he's come a little bit further. He's now like an adolescent figure. And when they're on the boat and they're comparing scars, um, Quint and Hooper are like, look at this bite that this shark took out of me. Look at this moray eel. Look at this, this thing that I, I got this massive cut of from a, from a stingray. And Brody is sort of standing in the corner and he picks up his shirt as if to show his little appendectomy scar. And then he's kind of like, no, no, I, I can't really oh. That was what that was. I I had a sense that something had happened to okay. Brody and that he did have the scar, okay. but didn't. Because there was there was always this thing throughout the movie that he was afraid of the sea. Yeah. Oh, you think something happened that made him afraid of the sea? Or I don't know whether that was just my own imagination going wild, or whether there was an ever Any that time. suggestion in the movie that there was something had happened. When he was a child, to scare when he was a child, to scare him of the water. Well, that yeah. may, maybe even he had some sort of a traumatic memory. Bite. Well, yeah. Well, that's because well, the wife mentions it. The wife's like, "You had this thing when you were a child," and he's like, "Drown." Yeah, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah he, he cuts her off." Section, yeah. She says like, "Because um, she's asking like, what's what's that what's that word for what you have a fear of?" Yeah, and he's like, "Drowning." Yeah, that's it. We're not having this conversation. Yeah, I'm a man. We don't talk about these things. No. Um, and then sort of you have this idea that not in front of the other guys <laughs> yeah, you're embarrassing me in front of the nice man who brought wine I like, how, I like how Hooper is so cultured that he brings both red and white wine to dinner because he's not sure what meat they're serving uh, whereas Brody is so uncultured that he proceeds to open the bottle of red wine and pour it into his glass of whiskey which Andrew assures me is not the way that you drink either of those beverages no but I can hardly speech it's a speech 
I can hardly speak. I can hardly talk. Um, because didn't I have Cali Mocho the other evening? When we Cali Mocho? That's when he makes Pepsi and uh, red wine, is it? Yeah, I think that's what it's called. It, it, like, it should... Yeah, you know, I, I, I made a big, huge mistake. <laughs> I miscalculated. If you're listening and you're having Cali Mocho, don't... don't, don't yeah, well, it, certainly if you are going to be, be in Spain... Make make it something light and fruity, and not not something good. Like have uh, don't don't, <laughs> don't have wine. Yeah. Well, welcome to the Colombian and Darren's talk about wine. Yeah. Um, Neither of us are sommeliers, nor know anything about wine. In but fact, Andrew didn't even drink his wine from a wine glass. No. And Darren doesn't drink wine at all. So we're really far. If life gives you a uh, Coca-Cola glass. Well then, have Cali Mocho. Yeah, that is the obvious solution. Um, what? I, yeah. So I, I think there's a great idea that, and there's the idea also of the sea as a traditionally feminine space, um, in that it's the it's the part of the world that birthed life, uh, which is what <laughs> the life of life came from the sea. So it's the idea of these three guys going out onto the ocean, which is just a feminine space. And there's this great shot after the shark menace. <laughs> this sounds like stuff that should be familiar to everyone. And yet it's like... You don't, you don't think see as a feminine space? Uh, okay, well, I, I think the, the imagery is basically that because the sea produced life. Right. <laughs> and because of the way that sailors talk about the sea. Oh. That it, it's seen as a mistress, it's seen as a woman, basically. It's seen as a traditionally feminized space. Okay. You don't see that? No, oh, I, can, I can see what you're saying. And I mean, in, in terms of, like, the shark as... Uh, and I feel like we're, we're getting into, like, this is a really heavily metaphor and symbolized Manuche. sex joke we're making here, <laughs> where the shark is presented as a giant phallus uh, cruising through the sea attacking. But there's a great shot uh, after the shark attacks so the guy in the boat in the shower. He's by, like, what is a big... Vagina. Vagina in the yeah. sea. Yeah, uh, and the shark is a penis. A big so vagina. A big dude, and, and a big grey penis with a fin on it. Big grey penis with a fin on it. Yeah. Um, this may be an over 12 podcast that we're making right now. Um, but there's, there is that great shot of Brody as he's running down after his son is attacked in the shallows. And it's the shot of the sea through the bottom of the bridge. And it's sort of, it's just opened out. It's just this wide open space. Um, and he sort of, to get in and out of that space, the shark would have had to sail through that gap. Um, am I <laughs> is this coming from you? <laughs> okay. This is, this, is, this is on your mind the whole time. <laughs> 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 the movie is like, oh boy. Yes, it's a Let's <laughs> get down into that sea. Yeah. No, no, all of this comes from, again, from Matthew Boleyn's wonderful overthinking a piece, which we'll include in the notes. <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't see that theme of, of masculinity as it relates well, to the sea and as it relates to... Gosh, I didn't know. I, 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 I had written down masculinity. Okay. Um, maybe, maybe you're on the money. I guess if you have to write an article. You might have just embrace it wholeheartedly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, that's... Okay, and then finally, one last thing that I know is what we're talking about themes is this idea of America. Mm. I think there's... Like, the film was made in 1975. Um, and it has... It's very much... It's rooted in that time and place. Like, I think that a film as it's produced reflects the time and period in which it was made. Uh, just by default, just by picking up the Hamian background noise. But I think there's a lot to be said of the film as it relates to the context of the 70s, right? So there's this idea... The movie starts with sort of 
hippies, I guess you could say. It does, yeah. So you can't tell if they're teens or if they're in their twenties. Seems like kind of maybe adults cast as as, as, as teenagers, teenagers. yeah. Um, because we needed that nudity later on, and you can't do that with teenagers. But um, this idea of the films, the films focus first of all on, on economic uh, recession, where the the big threat, the threat that the shark poses, is not necessarily the immediate threat to a person. Oh, nobody seems to really care about how the people are being killed. Yeah, like there's the sad mother, and that's about it. Um, everybody's more concerned about the economic threat the island. Like, even when Quint... Well, I'm, I don't know if we can establish that, that, that she's too sad. Like, she's wearing black in, in the height of summer, but she could just be a slave to fashion. Uh, okay. Okay. I think, I think the read on that scene is, is probably that she's a morning mother, but I accept, I accept your alternative perspective on that, Andrew. Thank you. Okay. Um, but... Um, what are we talking about? Oh, yes, we're talking about the when Quint, when Quint challenges the islanders, right? He doesn't say this shark will keep coming and will keep picking you off. He's like, no, no, you don't want to be on welfare for winter. Oh yes, yeah. And when um, and this movie, this movie, like thematically, it has a, it, it, it has a lot to do with class as well. Yeah, and um, even what's his name? Even sort of even uh, Mirabon. Yeah. Like when he's when the shark has like when he's witnessed the shark attack firsthand, the first word he says to Brody in the hospital is August. August. It's like we can still save August if we get ahead of this thing somehow, um, which takes a bit of a bit of effort. Because he has to pay his taxes in October. Yeah. But I think there's this interesting idea of the island of, and this is something that's, that's fascinating, right? So, like, do you see similarities between, say, Jaws and Moby Dick, uh, particularly with the character of, say, Quint? Speaking. Kind of big American theme. Speaking as a Philistine, mm. who's never read, not right, but I've never read, right, but I've seen many film adaptations. Um, with Gregory Peck, uh, yeah, and the remake, the the PBS one with Patrick Stewart, and I suppose you can get the recent in the Heart of the Sea, directed by Ron Howard and starring Chris Hemsworth. Mm. Um, well, and I watched Star Trek, and they quoted a lot on that. Oh, yes, yeah, in um, the first contact. Yeah, and he seized upon the whale's white hump, but some of all the fury in his soul. Had his chest been a cannon, he would have shot his heart upon it. I, in fact, I, I have a, a, a friend of mine who loves Moby Dick, who, who, who now that I think of it, should have had on for this one. Do you, I think there's a strong connection to be made there, particularly with Quint yes. and his obsessed yeah. pursuit of the... Because he's lost his mind and yeah. seems, seems to have... Um, yeah, the, the funny thing is that we were, like, they're forced to kind of measure themselves versus him as a man. Yeah. But he's a completely broken article. Yeah, he's completely psychotic. Like, there's yeah. a point where Brody, where, first of all, where he receives a call asking does he want any assistance. And yeah. he's like, nope, nothing happening here. I'm just getting my harpoon gun for harpoon and stuff. We'll be back for dinner, never mind. See, yeah, see, it seems to still be suffering from PTSD yeah. from the Indianapolis oh. back in... We'll talk about it in a moment, actually. Yeah. I, when we're getting to this theme of like the American, the American themes. Big enough for you. The American uh, ideas bubbling through it, but like this idea, and I find it fascinating. Do you think that there's Moby Dick is arguably like the defining American novel? It's generally regarded as the first great American novel. I think it's not unreasonable to say. And you have stuff like Jaws, which was the first blockbuster, which resonated incredibly with audiences. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's possibly some relation? Um, between the American identity and the sea, as opposed to, say, European identity and the sea. From sea to shining sea. I suppose, I suppose. 
But I mean, um, so maybe you think it's a bit of a stretch, but I just, I found it interesting that line, it's only an island if you look at it from the sea. Which oh, yeah. immediately dismisses as completely. I wrote, th- I wrote that down. But it's a great line. And part of me sort of wonders if that's part of the American identity inside you, right? So the film was released in 1975. It's celebrating the 50th anniversary of Amity itself. It would have been around the time of the bicentennial celebrations of America itself. And part of me sort of wondering if at that point you had this sort of insecurities questioning of this idea of European settlers who still see America as an island because they still see it from the perspective of their ancestors who arrived there. The way that we talk about America, we were talking about this earlier, about America being discovered by Christopher Columbus despite the fact that indigenous populations have been living there since the dawn of time, pretty much, or since for millennia, at least. We were talking about this. I think, was that off mic? That was off mic. But I'm just sort of watching that, I was wondering, is that a statement? I've been told. Is it a statement? That um, that you think Jaws is making is it something that reflects the American character of America? That's that is interesting. Is that too deep a read? Is that a read that is akin to what we're talking about—the shark as a giant, uh, the shark and the sea as male, masculine, and feminine symbols? Is am I reading too much into it? Hmm. Yeah, I have a deeper read going on, but we'll get to oh, that. Well, well, well. I feel like then, if if there is a deeper read, I, I'm, I may just leave the door. Somewhat open towards that. I, I, I believe at the moment there's 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 a gentleman called Donald Trump, Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump yes. who, who would like to build a wall to, to keep. Uh, yeah. Keep why, why, why not build a moat? Yeah, and make it a complete island. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think I think you're right. There's a there's a certain sense of nationalist identity there, and I think the film does hit on that with the islander and non-islander theme. Mm. Um, but specifically, and that's, that's modern as well, I think there was a, an interesting article in The Atlantic about how there's a current fixation on national borders. I think you see it with Brexit as well, and this idea yeah. that you can be an island in the stage of globalisation. And maybe, maybe that's part of it. But I think, I think the Jaws thing, I think... Well, an island never cries. Do they say that? That's a really odd idiom. It's a that's uh, Paul Simon. All right. I'm a rock. I'm an island. And a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. Yeah, as opposed to John Donne, who said, no man is an island. Paul Simon would clearly disagree with that, I said. Clearly. Yeah, was was that something we did during our junior certificate examination? Possibly. Possibly. But anyway, deeper read. (laughs) I do beg your pardon. Deeper read. Shall we go deeper? Deeper read. Okay, so, film released in 1975, immediately following the aftermath of the Vietnam War, in which countless people and an entire generation had gone off to die and had been lost, uh, led astray by their politicians and their leaders, and by a media who initially presented it as a just war before the Pentagon Papers, uh, before the exposure um, at the Fall of Saigon and stuff like that. This is deep. Where you have an island in which sending young people overseas is presented as something dangerous and something hostile. Um, and something that leads to bloodshed and violence as a natural consequence that is not a result of um, the actions that happen overseas in the same way that I think after Vietnam there was a perception that it was a war that the United States did not need to be involved in. It was something that they chose to be involved in um, as opposed to something that happened, a direct aggression that they responded to and they were justified in responding to. Um, I think that when you get to Jaws you have the politician, and it's, it's mindful of the politician you shows up, there, man. that the politician shows up uh, with the journalist in the same car 
and they talk to Brody and they tell him that everything's fine. He has to keep the beaches open. He has to not sound any alarms. Yeah, no, no photos of coffins. Yes, that sort of thing. Well, he doesn't want to cut the shark open. He doesn't want to cut the shark open because the people don't want to see the that. child inside. Let, let, let alone um, him admit that there's a child. Quite aside from whether that shark has eaten a child or not. Let the people not see. Yeah, that which I, I think that's yeah, as well. And I mean, there's even the bit where he's the politician himself, like Mayor Vaughn. Is he's on the beach? Larry Vaughn. Larry Vaughn, uh, our hero. <laughs> um, he's on the beach, um, and he's noticed nobody's in the water. And he immediately oh, yeah. picks. He immediately picks a bunch of people, um, uh, and he tells them to get in the water and, with their kids. And all uh, um, a rather elderly couple. But, and they're, but they're children. That's and, and they're very young children. They're three very young children. And it's, it's a great story. It's like a grandfather, a grandfather and a grandchildren. Yeah, and the parents got up and went to the bathroom. They're going to be really annoyed when they get back. Yeah. But I think that's that's to demonstrate the idea. They marry Vaughn. They marry Vaughn. And he's not getting re-elected next year. They're both camp. Yeah. But I think it's to, to sell this idea of children sort of sending their, their children off. Because the way that the child yeah. as well, when they wade into the water, the grandparents have put the children on the yellow life raft as if yes. offering it up as some sort of sacrifice. And yeah, and, and, and yeah, you very much get that, that he's sending them... Um, Basically, out to die. Uh, yeah. Knowing that they could die, knowing that they will die. There's, yeah. there's, there's, you get that sensation during a lot of these scenes when there are people in the water with sharks yeah. early in the movie... Who's going to die? Ooh. Who is that person? Who is it this time? Yeah. All right, so I think we've, we've talked about themes perhaps a bit enough. And perhaps we talked... We, 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 can, we can run to a... I think the reason we did themes first was we thought we're going to be talking about scenes for a really long time. So yeah. <laughs> let's, let's do a quick thematic roundup, in fairness. May have been, may have been quicker if I hadn't... Digress from a cop to an Irwin Gerstner and... Yeah, Larry Vaughn's as the hero of summer. Yeah, but Adam, it's it's great. I mean, those are all fun digressions. Let's talk about memorable yeah. scenes because the film is full of memorable scenes. Yes, it certainly it is. is. This is the film where you recognize. That all was the characters. difficulty we were having. We were watching this and we turned to each other and, and like a scene. Each said at the same time, there are too many great scenes. But yeah, no, the thing about Jaws is that it's fantastically constructed. Um, it's Spielberg's third theatrical release, uh, which is remarkable for it. What were the first two? And Spielberg's previous two cinematic releases, feature-length cinematic releases, were Firelight released in 1964, um, and then he took a gap. He did a lot of television work. He did a lot of shorts work. He did a lot of TV episodes. Firelight. Um, and the Sugarland Express in, Sugarland in Express. 1974 which does sound a little bit like the kind of movie Sylvester Stallone made before making Rocky. It does. It does. Bef- bef- before, before making Judge Dredd and, and Demolition Man with, with Roy Scheider. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. We're never going to forget that. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is basically, this was his third cinematic release, which is, shows an astounding, an astounding confidence and an astounding sort of stuff. Like, every sequence in it is memorable in some way, shape, or form. Yes. Um, particularly the tension, the mountain tension. There are, there Holy are, moly. Like, how, how are we going to do this? Do we, are we just going to go kind of... It could be so easy to talk to talk about every, about single, every scene. single scene. All right, well, let's go with shark attacks. What was your favorite shark attack from this? Shark attacks. I wrote them down. There were six shark attacks. All right, so how are we going to rank these babies? Chronologically. Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 
Okay. Uh, we're, we're, we're only counting shark attacks here um, where the shark uh, kills its victim. As opposed to just menacing it. As opposed to just menacing it. So, Sorry, Hooper. Although, although um, Jaws 5, Return of Quint. <laughs> Which may be difficult given that Robert Shaw has unfortunately passed away. That is the difficulty currently. <laughs> That's the production difficulty that we're having. Yeah, we're waiting for some Jaws 4 voodoo. Yeah, to, to bring Robert Shaw back. But yeah, only, art, art imitating life. Only life imitating art? Art imitating life imitating art. Only in the novelization, though. Which I like. I like the idea that you were making Jaws 4, and you felt that one of the scenes that you wrote well, was the scene which explained how the shark had come back from the dead after being exploded at the end of the first Jaws. <laughs> like, that's a detail the audience doesn't need to worry about. It'll only confuse them. Anyway, so shark attacks, chronologically, first attack, which yes. happens within the first, first attack. Chrissy. Yes. Chrissy, what's your name again? Chrissy! Yeah. And it's the iconic scene. It it's is. The scene that everybody it certainly remembers. is. And, and it's the scene that, if it had just been that in the, in, in, in the trailer, everybody would have went to see it. And everybody did. Yeah. <laughs> because this was the first blockbuster, wasn't yes. it? Yes, we're going to yeah. talk about that in a moment. But yeah. yeah, but... but Yes, it, it's it's um, uh, you you can't you can't kind of with it, um, try trying not to sound like a creep. This is this is a sexy scene, yeah. and and it, and it's intentionally so. Yeah. The, um, yeah, the way that she's shot, the way that she moves, the stripping as she runs. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's it's very much it. And it's she says, he says, "I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming." Nah. Andrew was chuckling. <laughs> Andrew was no, chuckling. no, no, no. And he's and, and then she takes off her clothes and he says, "Doesn't he say I'm definitely coming now?" Yes. Yeah, I don't know if that was intended. I, I suspect I've... it was intended. You don't put that in accidentally. No. No. no, no. Oh, okay. Um, Okay, and then so, so that's yeah, the first shark attack. It's that's the first shark attack. Yeah, she, uh, yeah it, it's, it's, it's one of these, uh, when, when you look at a movie like The Reef, you see like, um, sharks attack and that are terrible. Don't watch that movie. Um, or watch it just to realise how, how good Jaws is. Yeah, She's getting pulled over and back. She's hitting the boy at some point. Yeah, and then she's pulled under. And then we're yeah. focusing on the shark itself. It's just, yeah. it's the still water in a bubble. Yeah. Which is amazing, and then you see the 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 completely oblivious, ineffectual, emasculated, sorry, emasculated. Yeah, 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 and it has to explain it to the to uh, Rob Schneider. <laughs> sorry. Uh, thank you. Never <laughs> live that down. No, I beg you. Uh, all right, so second shark attack. Second shark attack. Second shark attack is probably the one that's spoken about the least. Can you guess? Uh, given I just watched the film, actually. So I'm trying to think what the second shark is. this the, the roast one? No, it's not. It's the... I'm just going to come out and tell it's you. It's the boy, isn't it? The boy gets eaten. It's a dog. Oh, yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's implied, even. It's explicitly stated. It is not explicitly stated, but we all know. Which is a great example of Spielberg visually communicating stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting... It's all of a sudden... It's like, where is... Where's I don't even know. Everybody else has a name. I'm sure, I'm sure the dog was also given a name in the movie. I seem to have forgotten it. Um... Where's the dog? Yeah, because you see the, the, the stick or the bone floating yeah. in the water idly. Which is it's great, because Spielberg's really, really good at that, at communicating stuff. Um, it's interesting, because I think Jaws has had a bit of a backlash recently when it comes to discussing Spielberg's work. Mm. Um, I think it's because the 40th anniversary came up, and because 
Jaws is followed by Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is the most Spielbergian of films. It's one of the few films in which he's credited on the script as well. It's like it's Spielberg's tropes um, sort of distilled to their, their logical essence. I think that people have come to see Jaws as like something that he did before that mm-hmm. um, and tend to be quite dismissive. So, for example, when people... Talk- I, uh, like, this, this movie is tremendous. Yeah. I, 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 we're, we're, we're talking about it now a little bit, kind of like scene by scene, but... Yeah. It's sorry, right. sorry. But, um, like, people talk about Spielberg's direction of it as if he's just doing a Hitchcock ripoff. So mm-hmm. that's the thing, like, there's that great long angle shot when the shark attacks the boy on the yellow raft, um, which is the third shark attack, actually. So yes. Like, which is a nice segue. We've sort of proceeded onto that. But the camera pulls back on Brody, so it zooms in as it pulls out, and it gives you this wonderfully effect. What a shot. And it is. And there's the sequence during that as well, where the people are walking in front of the cameras, um, and the, the shots are getting closer and closer and more claustrophobic. And this is as well during the day. Yeah. As opposed to the last... The first scene of the movie... It takes place at night. Takes place at night. Yeah. So you have this shark attack, and it's very violent. But it's not gory. And it's not dark. Be, 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 yeah, exactly. It's dark. You can't see anything. During the third shark attack, because you don't see the dog getting eaten. Yeah. It's only suggested during this third. It's in the middle so of the day. So gory. It's but in it's the not... middle of the... Well, like, it's not, it's not as gory as, like, today, but it's certainly, like, visceral. It, 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 it is visceral. It affects you. And, and it, maybe it affects you more because of the first scene. There is some... Uh, there is more... Discretion. Yeah, exactly. Uh, whereas this is quite kind of like you actually see the shark shape swimming yeah. and dragging the thing down. All of a sudden, a child is, is there, yeah. and the the water's full. The water's full of blood. Yeah, which I think is very, very effective um, and very affecting. Yeah. Because when 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 the mother sorry when 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 the mother runs to the shore because everyone is rushed in. Yeah. Off onto the beach. To get away from the shark, and the mother can't find her son. Um, and you have the little washed-up yellow, the torn yes. yellow, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is a fantastic. Again, that's another fantastic way of demonstrating. It's like the um, it's like the dog's floating bone. It's like it's uh, indicating the absence of something by the presence of the remains, you know, by, yeah. by what's left behind, uh, which is fantastic. And again, it's shot in the middle of the day, and it's fantastically tense. Um, Very. And I, because there are a few moments. Where you feel like it's about to happen and it doesn't. Yeah, and then it does. And then and, it certainly And does. it's astounding how the camera stays on the shark swallowing the <laughs> thing as well, because you're sort of you're conditioned to expect a quick jump scare, or you're conditioned to expect it popping out of nowhere. But you actually get to see the shark drag the thing down in the distance. So the fourth shark attack, Andrew. Fourth shark attack is actually another one that that you're that you're not likely to. Oh no, we're, we're only counting ones where the shark eats people, right? Where the shark eats people? Okay, yes, yeah, so nice. I, I had written I written down one as as a close call. Yeah. I had already written I, I had already circled this. <laughs> shark attack number four. <laughs> and then it turned out the two guys survived. Turned out the two guys survived. But again, it has this wonderful Spielberg touch. Well, first of all, it's got this theme of masculinity. Let's, yeah, let, let's let's talk about the close call. Yeah, because the two guys are like, what about Chief Brody? And the guy's like, he's on the other side of the island. And it's like it's a great scene that demonstrates how completely. <laughs> the people of the island disrespect Brody yeah. how readily they dismiss him and it's then, like your wife is going to kill you <laughs> yeah. um, but don't worry about the chief of police because they're throwing in the, the Sunday roast the 
holiday roast. The holiday roast. And he's like, yeah, $3,000 buys a lot of roast. Yeah. Um, which is great, because it's kind of like a cross between a country hick and a mafia boss. But they throw it in, and the sharks fall Your impression is? Not the actual actor. But uh, the shark eats it, and it's great, because it pulls the jetty out, which gives you a nice sense oh, of scale. That gives you a sense of power of this thing, yeah. even though you can't see it. And then... Mm. Then you have a drag. It drags the jetty out. And this is one of those great examples so, of so good. Because the guy's in the water splashing. I so badly wanted the shark to eat yeah. somebody at that point. <laughs> the jetty, the, the rays of the jetty are just floating in the water. And then they turn. Yeah. And they start chasing the guy. And it's this bit of woods that, that is standing in for the shark. Yeah. And it's just as terrifying. It is. It's fantastic. It's an indicator of where the shark is, even though you can't see the shark. Yeah, which, which is so clever and effective. I, I don't know how that works, but it does. It, does. it just works. It's, yeah. Uh, but I mean, Spielberg does it later on with the, with the, with the barrels, the yellow barrels as well. Yes. An indicator. But I think at night, that sequence with the jetty is just as incredible. And yeah, it's yeah. the fact that the, like, you have to, if you, even if you think about it logically, right, the jetty turns, which doesn't really make sense when you think the shark probably swam under it. Like, mm-hmm. the, the jetty probably wouldn't turn, it would just start moving in the opposite direction. The, the, but the fact that it turns the is shark believes in doing things properly. in a stylish way. Yeah, you know, we're going to do this properly. But it, it is, it grabs you, and it's, it's a memorable visual. It's stunning. So anyway, have you found the actual, the fourth? Shark attack. Yes, we certainly have. Okay. It, it was the one that I thought it was. Um, skipping the two guys that don't die. Who yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Andrew Bush did die. A little bit. I, I mean, they were the comic relief. The rodeo clowns. Yeah. Um, did not get gourds. Do you know who did? Who did get Gordon? Ben Gardner. Who's Ben Gardner? Ben Gardner was a fisherman who went out in a boat. Presumably, while all the, the hicks or whatever were out throwing dynamite and chumming, the shark was like, I kind of see, I see what they're doing here. I'm just going to be over here eating this guy. Yeah, and, 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 and he, he, uh, he's, he's found in the um, gunnel, or yeah. is that what you call it? Yeah, I, I don't so. know, we're not very good. We're, we're, we're going to get north marks for nautical terms here. Yeah, let, let's, let's, let's get Joseph Conrad in. <laughs> but um, but um, it's one of the films few jump scares as well, actually. Mm. It's when, I remember when I watched it the first time that one really got me yeah even though the shark because his eyeball is coming out yeah which is amazing it's it great it is really really creepy which suggests as well that the shark took his time because it's yeah. like what would be nice to have next I think I will have an eyeball. your eyeball yeah because yeah. you imagine as well the shark doesn't really have fingers and it's not very nimble and it's like no. so it, it took a lot of work to get that eyeball out and just to have that it was, it was yeah yeah this is a shark who knows what he likes yeah, it's not called a delicacy for nothing. You have yeah. to be delicate. Yeah, like, yeah, don't always be a shark. Nobody can see you. You're, you're on your own. Yeah. This guy. You have to have yeah. like things that keep you in. You're interested. a big grey penis. Floating through a big, Floating blue, through a big blue vagina. <laughs> you're tired of eating this person's face. Okay, thank you, Andrew. Well, maybe even a bit too deep a read. It was too deep a read. Was, was, was there a body part as well of, of, of this person? Or was it just the... No, it's later on there's a leg. Oh, yes. We certainly will. Because... Um, but Gardner, and it's a nice... And Spielberg does this thing. He He's very good at setting up visual cues. Like his, He doesn't necessarily foreshadow through dialogue 
um, or through plot. He tends to use the camera as an actor to draw you as a director yeah. to draw your attention to things that will be important later on. So when um, because he's so artful in the way he uses the camera, if you're if if suddenly there's a shot of a gas tank, yeah, you know that it's it's a choice. Yeah. Um, and you know that this will be so that when the gas tank is used later on, it's it's relevant. Mm. Uh, same thing here, where in the attack on Gardner, when uh, Richard Dreyfus picks out the shark thing, he gets the jump scare and he drops the shark tooth and his torch to the bottom, uh, which happens. It's a terrible dropper. He is like if you're sending one person into the ocean, don't send. Don't the, send the most droppiest. Yes, because it happens later on. He's attacked by her. He drops like the poison that he has to kill the shark. He's like alpha dropper. Yeah, uh, and it doesn't work at all. But it's a nice visual setup for what happens later on with much graver stakes. Like he drops the shark tooth, no big deal. Although one imagines that it would have been easier to convince the mayor to close the beaches if they had the shark tooth. Makes a big point of saying that as well. Yeah. Uh, as as if to further compound his embarrassment, because Hooper knows um, it's been the bane of his life. His dropping, dropping things, and especially for somebody who works primarily on the water in a cave, yeah. um, where you drop something, you're not getting it back. Yeah, that that, that could have been how 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 he became so obsessed with the sea in looking for things that he had dropped. Yeah. Um, okay, so fifth shark attack. Fifth shark attack. Fifth Shark Attack, I don't know this guy's name. He's Guy in Boat. Guy in Boat is nice to kids. He's in a ridiculously small boat. Yeah, and he's bothering kids when he should be looking behind him. Yeah, in fact, in, in fact the kids have a bigger boat. Yeah, and there are three of them. There are three of them. Um, he has a tiny boat. Uh, just to, to just to bring masculinity yeah, <laughs> into the metaphor. Yeah, yeah. He um, and he's warning the kids. He's like, "Hey, kids, what are you saying?" He's, he's like, "Yeah, you need something vague." Yeah, and you need a hand, which you is need a hand because hand. Either, either he's helpful or he's a complete. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was the seventies. We watched Fred and we watched Prisoner a little while ago. Andrew's still sort of still fixated upon that. Yes. Um, the um, but yeah, it's ironic because he says you need a hand, and then he gets called by the shark, and you get this nice shot of his leg. It's his leg, and it's such a good leg. It is. It's a great the, leg. Yeah, that, that, that is fantastic. The prop is amazing. because yeah. there's like blood still on it, and, and yeah, and but it's can, toned and it's athletic and it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's got hair on it. It's a, there's a great attention to detail in that leg prop. Fantastic. Yeah. And, but, and again, we're talking about the the Spielberg director moments. Welcome back to Leg Man. Yeah, <laughs> we really like legs. Um, talk about great Spielbergian directorial moments or choices. The sequence where they realize the shark isn't in the ocean but is in the shallows. Um, there's this great scene of Brody running through the crowd, and it's it's one of those things like we were talking about how you compare Spielberg to Hitchcock, mm. um, and how a lot of people have come to see Jaws, or how cynical people have maybe come to see Jaws as a film in which Spielberg is aping um, the style of of Hitchcock. That sequence is very much a Spielberg sequence where. Brody realizes that his son is in the shallows and the shark is also in the shallows and he runs and the camera follows him as he's running but it follows him through a crowd so you only see his head fleetingly as he's running through the crowd of spectators and the camera sort of pans him and then he's on his own as he's running. Um, it's a wonderfully confident, very comfortable, very well-constructed shot that helps to kind of give this impression of Brody as a man who exists apart from the others on the island where he is fighting to be heard until he gets out on his own, and then he's he's free reign. He's 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 gone. 
Wow. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't... No, 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 no. I, 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 um, listen, listening to you, to you, to you talk about that scene. That, that that's that's a that's a very good description. This is a great podcast. <laughs> you should be listening to it more. Uh, okay, so that's the fifth podcast. Uh, that's the fifth podcast. That's the fifth attack. The sixth attack, Andrew, is the one everybody also remembers. Yes. But I think we should have an interval um, in which we talk about the five or we'll call it six A, where the shark attacks but fails to kill Hooper, because you're going to be our expert on this panel. Andrew has actually literally swum with sharks. Or swam with sharks. Uh, yes. Well, I, 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 I've, 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 I hesitate to say swim. Um, I, I've, I've, I've done what Hooper did up until the point <laughs> where he dropped the poison needle. Yeah. And yeah, the shark yeah, attacks yeah. you from behind. And the shark attacks from behind. Which is on in the big ocean, because you'd imagine that the shark... Like, the shark can swim fast. The big grey penis coming from behind. <laughs> yes, yes. I see. Are you, are you getting it now? Are you getting it now? I'm finally on He's finally on board. Yeah, yeah, he's finally landed that, that metaphor. But um, it seems really odd that the shark is able to like sneak up on him, because he's a big shark. Now, I realise he swims fast. But you imagine when you're in the cage, you well, should be like... You know what they say, like, in the sea, no one can hear you scream. Or is that That's exactly else? what they say. Um, that's what everybody says. Yeah, it's, that's the idiom. Yeah. Uh, it's like meeting a stranger in the Alps. Nobody can hear a shark. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like meeting a stranger in the Alps, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so you were off the coast of South Africa, I believe. Yes, I was off the coast of South Africa in a cage with, with great white sharks. And you were talking about it because you were saying yeah. it's, it's instinctual. Like, so they were, they were um, chumming at this point, so they were throwing in like the... The, the fish remains or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so was the water sort of reddish? Or yeah, there, were, there, would have, there would have been like, you probably don't want to keep your mouth too wide open. Yeah. Um, so, 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 yeah, you're, you're trying to breathe through um, your snorkel, yeah. um, and then the um, the shark comes up to the tank, um, and but like, imme- immediately, even even though you you would imagine you're not in danger, because why would anybody do this? Why would the insurance as dangerous as it seems? Um, but still, you find yourself kind of like. Well, I found myself anyway, um, uh, like immediately blurting and the, the snorkel coming out of my mouth and going, which, 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 which is the reaction that that Richard Dreyfuss's character Hooper eventually has. Um, when the shark starts like coming much later than I did. What are the proportions like actually having been in there? This was, this was wider. Okay. So um, so I was there, and there were two other people in the cage. Oh, in the same cage. Right? I think so. I think right. so. Yeah. There may be a video of this. Okay. Well, we may put it up on the show notes. We may do. Um, but I like that Hooper. Hooper is attacked and mauled, but he manages to escape by sneaking off and hiding down the bottom of the reef, mm. uh, which is a nice touch. And then he sort of circles. He comes back up at the end once everything's been dealt with. He's like, so I took care of that. By the way. Anyone, any, anyone who wants to, um, or uh, what am I trying to say? I just interrupted Darren. <laughs> anyone, who <laughs> in, wants in, to. anyone who wants to, or anyone who's heard that description of uh, cage diving with the great white, um, it's a fantastic experience. Oh, Absolutely, go ahead and endorse it, even though it's I would endorse it. like you described it as a primal fear. Yeah, I, I feel like that, and that's its appeal. Okay. 
Um, feel, feeling like you may you may die hmm. makes you feel alive. Just me. What's the point in living if you can't feel alive, Andrew? To get James bonding on us here. Yeah, to to to, to um, live and let live and let die. Yeah. But um, okay. another day. So let's talk about uh, the sixth shark attack, which is of course our man Quint. Our man Quint almost has the same name as me, but not quite. Yes, and does not like cage diving with sharks. No, the, does it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. He's on the whole, I would say, he's against the whole cage diving. Yeah, which makes us question: Is he really? A shark person. The, yeah, is is he really the big man that we we think he is? Yeah. What? Although, <laughs> what's with that shark? <laughs> the shark really likes. Yeah, but the the, 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 the um, this is perhaps a reason why there's so much artful use of things that aren't the shark to represent the shark. The shark. Because um, the shark is, is terrible. It was a notoriously terrible prop. They put it in the salt water and discovered that the salt water was not conducive to it. Despite it corroded the parts. It corroded the parts. To, and despite the fact that the shark prop cost a lot of money. A lot of money. A lot of money. Spielberg ended up not using it and shooting largely around it. Which is ironic because I think it, it makes the film a better film. Yeah. Because um, when the shark shows up at the end, it's, it's not good. Mm, yeah. I, I feel like... Up until that point, and, and actually, I was thinking while watching the movie, is there anything I don't like about this so far? That shark prop. That's it. More, more, more. And only, only, only that um, moment just before uh, it gets quint. It gets quint. Yeah. There, there is a moment there where it seems to kind of flop, like it's made of foam. Yeah. And um, yes. But that's it. This movie was made in 1975. And it looks fantastic. Still, still better than shark movies made in 2015. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about the other scenes. So what, what jumped out at you apart from the, the six shark attacks and the two near misses? Like, what would be, if you were to pick one scene from Jaws or one detail or what you really liked about it? I really liked about it. Like, I think Spielberg... Spielberg's fantastic. I recognizably That's the problem. We're just spoiled for choice. There, 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 there are so many. From 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 little moments like Polly in 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 in, in the office, his yes. secretary. Talking about karateing the white fence, but pick up yeah, the fence. And completely oblivious, and they're each oblivious because neither of them are listening to each other. Or having the same conversation. Or having the same conversation. The I liked a lot of the small town points. I wonder if, if small town details, I should yeah. say. I wonder if it was a choice that sometimes you can't understand what Quint is saying. Or whether it was just like Robert Shaw showed up and uh, <laughs> and nobody and Spielberg was afraid to challenge him. Well, have you, have you ever had that experience of of um, like um, neither of us are out and out city slickers? Um, no, by, I mean, we by, both, by any means. No, we both um, came from the country. We both came from the same country city, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but we each have, have... Well, I certainly would have had experiences of... Um, even members of... <laughs> um, even, like, extended members of my family who I can't understand what they're saying. Yeah. And, and, and that makes you feel like you don't belong to a place. Yeah. When, when, when this is a place you're meant to belong to and, and, and where you live and, where you live, yeah. um, and there's this person talking in, in their uh, natural way colloquial yeah. 
uh, yeah, and you and you can't understand a word. Which is yeah, and I think we talked about that when we talked about Quint. Yeah, Quint yeah. is yeah, Quint is very much he's a local native islander, and nobody questions him. And you get the sense that even when he's talking, that you know we have difficulty understanding him as the audience. But you wonder, does Brody or does Hooper really understand him either? And they're just too intimidated to, to raise their hands and say, sorry, I, I lost you at the bit where you said shark. Well, apparently, um, a, lot of, um, a lot of this was, a lot of it was improvised, particularly a lot of Quint's um, dialogue was improvised by Robert Shaw, including, I believe, the speech about the Indianapolis. A lot of that just was wow. Shaw talking among them, uh, sorry, Shaw sort of articulating or what was that very genuine. real. Yeah, yeah. But I think, and it's like the way he spoke about it, it wasn't bombastic or let me tell you a story. Yeah. Or and, and, and the way he signs out on it, it's kind of like Yeah, because he repeats 1945. The, he repeats the line like we, we deliver the bomb. We deliver, that's the thing to yeah. take out of it. Which is like, I think it ties back into the Vietnam War theme as well, because he's talking about his, his encounter with the shark during the Second World War hmm. and how that's tied to, say, the bombing of Hiroshima. Yeah. And it seems like a very weird detail to come back to. Like, it would feel forced, except for the way that Shaw delivers it. It's like the end note of it is look, he's uh, so good, 700 of us got eaten by sharks, but in the end, we did what we had to do. We won the war. Yeah, our estimation. It's like the sharks and the Japanese were all, all in the same. It's sort of a conspiracy against yeah. the allies. The sharks were the secret enemies, the, the Axis allies. I just want to sort of talk about Shaw and the casting of this. For yeah. Second, right? Because reportedly, right, reportedly, okay. Charlton Heston oh. was very interested in playing the lead. And I'm not sure, I did a bit of researching, I couldn't find which lead. I wasn't sure whether or not he'd be playing Brody or whether or not he'd be playing Quint. But he was... Then there was studio interest... I imagine him as Brody. Yeah. Sort of like... Uh, well, he'd be a masculine. He'd be, yeah, I don't think it would be an iconic movie. Yeah. I don't think it would have worked. Um, maybe his reading of it would have would have had... I don't see him playing Quint. I don't I don't see Hessen choosing to play Quint. Okay. I feel like him him choosing to play Brody and making it... Making... Uh, uh, a heroic. Yeah, yeah, making Brody much stronger and whatever. But I think it, it's... Spielberg basically cast three almost character actors um, as opposed to three conventional leading men. I think, like, Schneider is probably the most conventional leading man there. I didn't say it that time. No, you didn't say it that time. I said it that time. Spielberg does the same with Jurassic Park as well, right? Jurassic Park is a film that is a massive blockbuster about dinosaurs that stars... Yeah. Sam Neill, which is some Australian Northern Irish guy who was in that movie where Billy Zane gets on a yacht and tries to kill Nicole Kidman. It also stars Jeff Goldblum, who was the man who was turned into a fly. And it also stars Laura Dern, who is that woman who appeared in a couple of those films by David Lynch. Like, it's very much a B-movie cast. Like, you could imagine, you imagine Goldblum, Dern, and Sam Neill starring in a, in a dinosaur movie where the dinosaurs are played by Ray Harryhausen sort of stop-motion figures. Uh, and I think it works very well that you have this contrast. But Spielberg, Spielberg with Jaws did the same thing. Like Dreyfus, Dreyfus is Dreyfus is phenomenal. Yeah. But he's, you look at him and you think he's a character. Like he's very much a character actor. And for him to be like the second lead, and it's because when he shows up on the island, like he doesn't recognize Brody as an authority figure. He, he he nudges Brody. He's like, can you tell me who the chief is around here? Um, and later on, when Brody's, he's the one who tells Brody that he can't put eight people on a boat or they're going to top over. Um, and he's the one they, yeah and, and, and that, that scene is fantastic because of how 
it's a big part of Hooper's character, how snide he is. Because yeah. he's like, they're going to die. Yeah, you're all going to die. You're all going <laughs> to so die. He walks off cheerfully. Boop, 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 boop. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting on with my day. Yeah, it's like, you fools. Yeah. And then, there's no moral outrage or tragedy. It's just no. like, he's <laughs> just like, I'm smart and you guys are going to die. Yeah. Like, I gave you one warning. Uh, yeah. And then he made a joke about me walking into the ocean. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of, your death is on you. And and then him him uh, his doubts about about the the tiger shark being the shark, and suddenly the proud islanders who've who've slain oh, this the shark. This is really and, good. Yeah, yeah. What kind of shark is it? It's like wow. Yeah, it's like, like a tiger shark. Why? Yeah. All the islanders. So yeah. Strangely enough, turn around and like, what? what? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and they're kind of like, um, it's almost like they're poking him with their finger and saying, you... Yeah, because the, the following bit is the bit where bite radius. How about I shove your head in there and you see if he's a man eater? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, Hooper has this line, um, oh, I should have written it down, where it's basically like, I think it might, may be the shark, or may not be the shark. I, I, I really don't want to get beaten up. He's like, oh, we're just having a, a discussion about what kind of shark it is, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that I don't get the snot kicked out of me. I'm terrified of the fact that these guys will beat me up because I'm smarter than them. Which I'm, I'm, I'm the wonder, like, you, you, were, you were maybe a student in suggesting that um, uh, anti-Semitism might might be... Because I... I, uh, um, Maybe I'm thick. I just... It it hadn't occurred to me. But, of course, as soon as as you say it, you realise, of course. Well, that's the thing. um, When he meets Quint for the first time, Quint grabs his hands really viscerally. And he's like, by the way, Chuck's going to eat you. And you got smooth hands from counting money. Uh, and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, Because first thing he says is, like, uh, tie me a sheep shank. Yeah. No problem. Hooper ties a sheep shank. And he's like, oh, I've got another reason. Show me your hands. Yeah. yeah, those are due hands. Yeah, can't be having those on the ship. Yeah. Um, and it, it's kind of fascinating that you should say this, right? Because, um, uh, yeah, there's, there's, some, there's some overt anti-Semitism there. Um, which is, is interesting because Spielberg uh, himself is, is Jewish and he's talked about how when he was younger yeah. he had a lot of difficulty relating to his Jewish identity, his parents' uh, Jewish mm. practice. And also when he was in school he was picked on because he was Jewish. Yeah. Um, and you get a sense watching the film that maybe Hooper is perhaps something of an identification character for him. Yeah, I wonder if, like, for, for, for Hooper... Well, so well, well, I, have, I have a quote here, actually. So Spielberg told me about high school that had the anti-Semitic experience. In high school, I got smacked and kicked around. Two bloody noses. It was horrible. And you, start, you see that when Hooper is, as you said, it's like, I don't want to get beat up about this. Mm. Yeah. Because for me, the first thing that occurred to me was like, oh, it's like anti-intellectualism or it's... Um, uh, reverse snobbery, yeah. Like where, where, and 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 Hooper even says at one point, because let's be clear, at no point does Hooper say, "You anti-Semite." No point does anybody actually accuse him of being a Jew? No, 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 absolutely not. But but what he does say is like, um, I'm not going to listen to this uh, working class hero crap. Yeah. Which 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 is which is um, because uh, Hooper quite openly. 
um, it's, it's wealthy. He says, like, how did you get all this equipment? I'm rich. <laughs> My family paid for it. Oh, yeah, I'm rich. How rich? Me or the whole family? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where, where, it's like, I think, I think generally with somebody who's, who's um, uh, maybe upper middle class, they're almost kind of embarrassed about it. No, Hooper, um, yeah. Hooper, Hooper, Hooper is very comfortably kind of, yeah. I got money. Yeah. I am better than you. <laughs> I'm also smarter too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, when he tells Brody, you're gonna, when I leave, you're going to be the only rational person left on this island. Yeah, and, and, and the moment where Hooper and Brody meet is, is the moment where it's like, hey, we're the same. <laughs> <laughs> we understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, we're his kind of friend in terms of like, oh, th- thank God you're the um, the marine biologist yeah, I ordered. Bro- but there's so much enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah, Brody's like, like, goodness, somebody's finally here. Finally. It's not just like your plumber has arrived. No, no, it's like this is the man who's going to save us. And it's, again, I love that sequence. Like, Brody... Two odd ducks. Yeah, but when, when Hooper shows up, Brody immediately sort of deputizes him, right? Because um, Hooper's like, they're talking to the, like, the eight guys who are loading onto a boat and going to fall down. And then this guy walks past with dynamite. <laughs> and, and there's a sequence where Hooper's, and Hooper is the one who takes charge. Hooper's like, Brody, you should probably stop that guy with dynamite. And Brody kind of does. And it's a great sequence because Brody doesn't, if you watch the sequence, Brody doesn't stop the guy with the dynamite. Brody grabs a hold of the dynamite, but the guy refuses to let go. And so Brody has to go off and have a conversation with the guy about the dynamite and like immediately deputizes Hooper to be like, okay, you get those eight guys out of the boat. You're it's your it's a small town, and <laughs> while you may be the, the, the sheriff, and by the way, there's a great line, I think almost more than there being uh, great scenes, which there are in this movie, there are so many great lines. Yeah. Um, well, this is the bit where he says, where, you know, where I say we cut that shark open right now, and, uh, yes. you know, and Brody oh, agrees with him, and the wife's like, can you do that? And taking a swig from his mixture of whiskey and red wine, Brody, drunk on power, declares, I'm the sheriff. I can do it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and later on, they have the conversation about how he's not drunk enough to get on the ocean yet. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, there's stuff between, um, between Brody and his wife. Like, the, do you want to get drunk and fool around? Which is a little detail. Yeah, and, and there's, there's a moment where his son has just gotten a boat, and uh, Broly knows that there's been a shark attack, and he's shouting out to his son. He's like, get, get off that boat, get off that boat. Intellectually. And, 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 yeah, and the, the, the wife is like, oh, don't worry, he's in the boat, it's fine. And then she's looking at a book and sees, like, a shark attack depicted in the book and says, did you hear your father? Get out of there now. Yeah, there's a lot of, lot of really great, uh, really great moments. Yes. Smile, you son of a... Oh yes, which you were. I I I always just assumed I was smiling, son of a. Yeah. But uh, no, to get the twelve rating, you got to keep those squares under. You can have all the smiling, son of a, and and nobody who uh, probably very few people who saw that movie noticed that I had been. But it's very much smiling, son of a, and it's a great line because smiling, son of a, boom. Yeah. Yeah. Punctuation. It's yeah. Amazing. yeah, and I like how Spielberg sets it up. Uh, Spielberg very clearly sets up the idea of the oxygen being explosive because one of the first things Brody does is when he tie- he unpulls the knot, uh, which is one of those great Brody is basically a child at sea moments. Yeah. He unties the knot and the gas canisters pull and Quint is like, look, that will blow us all up. They're like, this detail might be important later. But you get these wonderful, repeatedly through the film, Spielberg will pan over the gas canisters 
or he'll keep an eye on the gas canisters. Or, and actually, this is one nice touch that I really like. Really early in the film, when Brody is leafing through that booklet on sharks. Oh, yeah. Sure, of what looks like a shark with its mouth biting, yeah. biting an oxygen canister that presumably came from some poor diver. So basically, subconsciously sets up later on. The, the, hero, the hero of the movie is actually. <laughs> That's gas canister. That's gas canister. I, and, and another line, last line in the movie, um, I used to hate the water. And what, what's, what's your I can't imagine why. Yeah, which is a great, great which is fantastic. Um, <laughs> Hooper and Brody died on the way back there. <laughs> um, no, unfortunately Brody appeared in uh, two of the three sequels. He was smart before the Voodoo Shark film. Although the Voodoo Shark film heavily implies that Brody had a heart attack owed to the psychological warfare waged upon him by the shark. Wow. Yeah, this is pretty deep, isn't it? Yeah. It's amazing, yeah, people don't talk about it, because in a way, it's it's arguably a universal horror film. Presumably a lot of people watch the second and third movie. Yeah, well, they did, it financially did very well, and... It's reference in Father Ted, of course. And there were also, like, um, there were also lots of great rip-offs. Like, my personal favourite um, is Great White, released in 1982, with a $30 million opening weekend, which probably adjusted for inflation is like $250 million or something. Um, I should research that before. That's quite a bit. But all of that, all that money was wiped out by a lot Yeah, the prints were burned. Uh, it was directed by Enzo G. Castellari, who also made the original film The Inglorious Bastards, inspired by Tarantino. But when he directed this film, Great White, about a shark attack in 1982, international marketing was a bit more brazen. Um, it was released under the title The Last Jaws in several international markets. Understandably, Universal were not happy about that and sort of stamped down on it, um, stamped down on it pretty heavily. Yeah, we, we need to identify the person whose bright idea that was. <laughs> yeah, one imagines they might have got away with it to a certain point, because again... Presumably this was in the height of cocaine. It's just call it Jaws, baby. Like movies like Blackula. Yes, that's clearly a drag exploitation film. That's the only exploitation that is happening there on a cultural level. Um, well, it's Dracula. Like. It is. <laughs> Those Romanians, they never get enough. Have you seen Blackula? Blackula's great. The original Blackula is a fantastic film. In its yeah, own. yeah I, 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 I would like to see it. I had an opportunity to see it, I think. Yeah. Scream Blackula Scream which A lot of people have seen Blackula But Blackula is fantastic That's another movie we'll never get to, <laughs> to discuss on this, on this podcast I think Blackula might Maybe Scream Blackula Scream might be on there It's the sequel It is much much inferior Under 250? On the bottom 100 On the bottom 100 Just Okay. Yeah. Oh yes The introduction of Quint The Blackboard Yes I want to actually talk about this right? Because Jaws is a film with three lead characters and yeah. it doesn't introduce them all together and it doesn't introduce them in parallel. It introduces Brody, uh, it waits about 20-25 minutes, then it introduces Quint, then it waits another say 10-15 minutes and introduces hmm. um, Hooper. 
I think Quinn's introduction is perhaps the most dramatic. Yeah, in any, it's one of the great introductory sequences in cinema. Mm. Uh, and it's fantastic because it immediately contrasts, we're talking about the masculinity and stuff. Like, Brody in those sequences is very cleverly shot by Spielberg. So he's the chief of police, but he has absolutely no authority. Like, in the sequences where Brody is standing up and talking, uh, Spielberg frames the shot so that the sitting down members of the council, including Mayor Vaughan, are much larger than Brody, and Brody's in the background shouting to be heard. And the villagers aren't listening to him. Where, and even when the camera's looking head on them, it's all focus, uh, it's all center. Yeah. Uh, whereas when Quint shows up. And he's jostling about, knocking yeah. things over. Yeah. Almost as bad as Hooper. Yeah. Whereas on the, on the other hand. He knocks uh, over some paintbrushes. He does knock over some paintbrushes, which was a nice touch. And whereas Quint is introduced, scraping his nails down the blackboard, and the room immediately turns to his attention. Even though he's sitting down, he's not standing up. He's got nothing to apologise for. No. And the camera, as he's talking, where he's doing that whole great, I'll catch him for three, but I'll, can't, no, I'll hunt him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for ten. The camera is so captivated on him, like the audience and like the spectators in the room, that it pans in and focuses tightly on him. And it's just like, this is everything, this is all the masculinity that uh, Brody does not have. And it's just focused in Quint. Which, by the way, the end of the film suggests, maybe that's not a good thing. Maybe it's okay that Brody's not super hyper masculine, given that Quint is the only one of the three. So I'm super. Yeah. I'm super like a man. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, it's a shock. It's a great. And then, and this is the thing that I. Because I, I've watched it this time, I've seen it lots of times before. This time. What that I, is part of masculinity, isn't it? What? Being a big, stupid lump. Yeah, and being unapologetic for it. Like, embracing your stupidity. In contrast to, say, Hooper, who is learned and. I don't know anything. Yeah, but I'm still taking charge. I'm still going to put up in charge here. Yeah. I don't want to say what's what, but it's right or not. Yeah. Um, I'll hunt for three, I'll catch him and kill him for ten. Which I believe is a bigger number. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's the scene when he gets up and leaves, uh, which is fantastic. But I noticed this time... It's a very out the chief. Like, so he's able to pan through, oh. and the way the scene is composed, 
they travel through the gap in the shark's teeth, which allows them to keep the open shot longer, which is a lovely touch. It's a fantastic... Need to face that shark tooth. Yeah, that, that, where did they think of the shark tooth that Hooper dropped? It's all connected. Ah, and that was a prop. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Any other, other details or memorable scenes that you liked? Oh, smoking. We talked in the last movie. Uh, I believe it, yeah, I believe it, it's the, it, it should be the last if you're, if you're listening to them in order. If we haven't just, just left your iTunes on. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, this was 1975. The first one is during that whole dynamite scare scene. Yeah. Where, where, where it's sort of... Brody calls the deputy. It's, it's a great scene because Brody's talking on the phone and the deputy's standing outside and he needs to grab the deputy's attention so he grabs like a bunch of M&Ms and throws them against the window and the deputy turns around. He doesn't come in. He turns around and he waves. He's like, hi, chief. What's doing in there? It's like, and Brody has to do the phone. Yeah. <laughs> You're just you're like Cooper over here. Sure, he drops things. Yeah. <laughs> we, we don't, uh, yeah, we, we don't go up to outside. I mean, come on, I'm just humoring you. Um, and he sort of calls the guy in who's smoking a cigarette Shed. Yes. And the scene is composed in such a way that you can see the Texaco oil cans yeah. on the wall, like the flammable fuel hanging on the wall. Everybody smokes everywhere since the 70s. But not even that, he takes the cigarette out of the guy's mouth and starts smoking it himself. So now they're both culpable. And then later on, there's a scene uh, in the in the morgue. Before the hospital, yeah. in, um, when uh, it's the body of Chrissy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this was no boat propeller. Oh, yeah, I love how indignant Hooper is. Hooper is like, uh, haven't you gone out and investigated this? And Brody's like, uh, no, 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 didn't, didn't get around to that yet. And Hooper's like, what the fuck? What am I dealing with here? Uh, this is no boat accident, is this? Yeah. Um, he's so righteous and indignant. He's like, this is a small town cover-up. You don't have to tell me. I know this is a small town cover-up. Yeah, yeah. You haven't told the Coast Guard? <laughs> you should be calling in the National Guard, my friend. By the way, Coast Guard never is. <laughs> Do, do the Coast Guard ever no, arrive? They no. never show up. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it's Quint, is, Quint smashes the radio. Um, mm, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, Hooper's like, because uh, Brody's, is it Brody smoking in that case? Or is it the coroner? It's probably the coroner. And <laughs> uh, maybe people are smoking in the morning. Everybody's smoking except for the dead body. Yeah, and Hooper, who's like, please, please, can we have a bit of professionalism here? Yeah, yeah, don't smoke in here. Uh, next next yeah. time you see somebody smoking is in an actual hospital. <laughs> it is, uh, it's Mayor Vaughn. Mayor Vaughn. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. very concerned about all smoking this. for his nerves. Yeah, you know, it, it helps settle them, you know? Doesn't. No, not at all, it turns out. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're speaking to you from the future, uh, Larry Vaughn. Those cigarettes don't help your nerves. No, it turns out. Oh, and also, don't smoke them in hospitals. Um, but far, far be it from us. To cast judgment on Far be it from it. us. Far be it for us. Far be it for us. Thank you. All right. Welcome to Idiom Watch. Yes. Um, <laughs> this is what happens when you meet a stranger in the Alps. <laughs> the body in the morning... On the dunes is eaten by crabs. Covered by crabs. If, and again, you could argue there's some sexual imagery there as well. Not the venereal disease. Yes, that's what I'm about to say. You have an impotent man and you've got a woman covered in crabs. Um, <laughs> now you say my gender thing is a deep read, Andrew. <laughs> now you say my gender thing is a deep read. It was there all along. Yeah. You're, you're, you're always looking at people in this movie wondering, I wonder if they're going to get eaten. Yeah. Mm. Even hope, though they're all hope, hope they don't get eaten. Yeah. Or unless Omer Vaughn. Or that nice, you're never an islander woman. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, 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 she can go straight to Shark. Sharkville. Yeah. Oh, by the way, so you work in Shark. Yes. Yeah. So, no, so, 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 yeah. I never put it like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not what it, 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 it's like, um, yeah, yeah, you work in Shark. And he's like, yeah, I never put it like that, but I've always loved it. I felt like a lot of that scene was <laughs> improvised because they're both kind of, um, Hooper and, um, Brody and the Brody and the wife just seem so giggly yeah. in that and it's really enjoyable and it's a great scene it also it's like it proves that Brody's like the conversation begins with the wife and Hooper actually talking and conversing and you yeah. see sort of Brody's locked out or Brody's sort of like he's feeling like he's not a part of this conversation like oh are you, are you, are you talking about uh, I think we both like love this scene oh that it was a kid as well yes there's a lovely little scene as well and this gets into the idea that Brody has to go back and become a boy before he can become a man mm-hmm. like he's been completely useless throughout the film to this point he hasn't actually done anything a bunch of people got killed sitting at the dinner table with his son and his son is like miming him his son is basically mimicking his actions so, you know he's resting his head in his hands he's crossing them yeah and there's just this, this lovely shot so the scene goes on for about say 20 seconds and the audience is sort of figuring out what's happening it's, and then you it's get really Brody, yeah. Yeah, Brody realises what's happening yeah. and he plays like the mimic game where he makes the scary face at him yeah. which, is, which is really nice because later on when they're on the and that Spielberg has again Jaws has all these lovely little setups and callbacks later on when they're on the boat when Quint says something that's, you know, vaguely anti-Semitic, but not explicitly anti-Semitic, uh, about uh, Hooper, Hooper proceeds to make funny faces behind him. And when he's climbing up in the mass, he's also making funny faces behind him as well. So you have that nice sort of childishness playing through the film. What's the vaguely anti-Semitic? I can't remember. He does something about how Hooper doesn't know anything about Oh! I, yeah, I didn't read it like that. I, 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 I think it was like... Um... <laughs> just do this as Alpacino from now on. It's like, thought you had enough education to tell when you, when you made a mistake. Oh, that's from this, yeah. To admit when you made a mistake. Um, the voice of the voice of Quint on this podcast has been supplied kindly by Al Pacino. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so he does, and then Hooper makes faces at him. And there's the nice thing where. Um, there's also another little, oh, a nice callback where there's, there's that scene as well. There's so much good stuff in that scene. Sorry. Yeah. Um, oh. Where where Hooper says, "Is anyone eating it?" And just <laughs> just a grab the food over. Yeah, and 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 it, and it quite it, it it's 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 quite clearly Brody's there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because Brody is looking at it saying, "No, I'm almost too drunk to." Oh, we we spoke about that that line. I'm not drunk enough to get out of the boat. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, and again, that's another example of Hooper emasculating Brody. Yeah. Like, like, Hooper is the nerdy one, by the way. It should be, it should be clear. Yeah. Hooper, Hooper is very nerdy, and yet he's still able to come on. He, he questions Brody's ability to lead. He points out all the errors that are being made on the dock. He draws Brody's attention to the guy with the dynamite. Yeah. He actually steals Brody's dinner. In and, the book, and yet Hooper screws Brody's wife. What? Yeah, and uh, we'll talk about the, the novel maybe in a little bit later on. Um, but yeah, this is to give you an idea of how thoroughly emasculated Brody is by Cooper, who is not super masculine. Quint still doesn't recognise game. <laughs> no, 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 no. He, he tends to defer to... He, like, it feels like... Um, yeah, he was, he was certainly giving Brody a lot more slack. Yes. Well, I think all that was down to the whole treating Brody as a child thing as well. Yeah. Where he teaches him how to... He does the more... The eel comes out in the cave and the eel goes around... 
Here's an interesting thing for you, right? Spielberg, speaking of Spielbergian themes, right? Yeah. You could argue, right? So Spielberg went on after this to do Close Encounters with Richard Dreyfus, which is fun because there was a time in the 70s where like Richard Dreyfus was like the leading man, which is very strange to think about in hindsight. I love Richard Dreyfus, but he's not a conventional leading man. And the same way that sort of in the middle of the... Great emotional range. Oh, he does. And he's got great presence and he's... Like, you can fit him in anything and he will, he will work pretty well. Um, and I think the same thing happened. Spielberg did the same thing with Goldblum during the '90s. Like, remember a time in the '90s when Jeff Goldblum was our Vin Diesel? When he did like Jurassic Park, he did Independence Day, he did The Lost World. Like, there was a point where when you were going to the cinema to see a blockbuster, you were probably our Vin Jeff. Diesel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you you dispute that category? I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I never signed off on that. I, I think there's an argument to be made, and I think it's a strong one. But there's a point. He's like the Vin Diesel of our time. Yeah, of the '90s. Jeff yeah. Goldblum. That was what a time to be alive. Where you're sort of looking at Richard Dreyfus and thinking, you know, this man is not a conventional leading man, yet somehow it's happened, and it's great that it's happened. Um, but yeah, so Spielberg's sort of next film being Close Encounters and being very Spielbergian. Uh, but it has the theme, and James Lipton, is it James Lipton from the Actors Studio? Yeah, I think it is James Lipton. He pointed out very astutely that Close Encounters of the Third Kind is a film about how, making contact with aliens, people use music and science and bring them together um, in order to make contact with aliens where Spielberg's divorced parents were a concert musician and an electrical engineer who worked with computers. And so Spielberg, whose one of his big themes is family dissolution, was in his own way in Close Encounters bringing the family back together, where his father's uh, computer experience and his mother's uh, musical experience were being used to sort of harmonize and to make contact. Now, wow. if you... And Spielberg, this is great. If you, Richard Dreyfus. If you, you watch, are a delight. If you watch the Inside the Actors Studio with Spielberg, uh, with Lipton, it's fantastic. Because Spielberg's kind of like, actually, I never thought about it like that, but now I don't have to pay for therapy anymore. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> because uh, he's like, I never really realized it until you pointed out. But in just with, with, with Lipton, with, with, with Richard Dreyfus, no, no, with Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg. Wow! It's like I never realized about my work, but now that you put it... Oh, I do beg your pardon. Yeah. Steven Spielberg. Who is fantastic. Not really an actor. So it may not have been... Let us talk about Close Encounters. Yes. Um, But... Love a bit of James Lipton. Interestingly, I think you could make a very strained and stretched argument, which hasn't stopped us yet. Oh, Jaws! We're entering the strained and stretched argument zone. Which has, doesn't have its own theme song in that. No. But you could convincingly, you know, okay, you could convincingly invert the <laughs> but you could with, no, I'm missing. with a deep read, we're getting in for a deep read here, Ooh. are you ready? Suggest that Jaws is about a dissolved, is about a family unit where Brody is cast the child. Quint is cast as the uh, temperamental artist. He believes in instinct. He, ha- he thinks there's an art to killing a shark. Hooper is cast as the engineer or scientist. And together they use their methods to catch the shark and to help Brody become a man. You could wow. suggest that perhaps this is setting up some of Spielberg's themes that he would kind of hit home in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Is that too much for me? Well, listeners, you, you, you can only hear us. You can't see us. Behind Darren on, on his wall are n- numerous charts and projections. and um, A giant portrait of Sigmund Freud. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, he has lines going in between all of the different pieces of paper yeah. indicating their connection. Somehow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the way we work here. We all worry about Darren. <laughs> very, very much. When no, no, the, 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 to, to be... To be serious, that, that's yeah. It's it, 
um, when when you find something like that and and you're able to kind of connect, yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting. Now, yeah, now it, it is a bit of a reach, to be fair. It's a bit of a reach, but I nothing think wrong with a bit of a reach. No, nope, nothing at all. Scar bombing like that. Great scene, mostly improvised. The Indianapolis yeah, story. USS Indianapolis. Yeah, they they as as the other actors were talking. The, um, some of the actors in the scene were cutting themselves scars so yeah, that they could improvise. Just something to talk about. Yeah. Uh, then we'll move on to sort of the film's legacy, which I think is important to talk about when you're talking about Jaws. Because as you, you mentioned earlier, and we sort of alluded to it, Jaws was the first big studio blockbuster, really. It and Star Wars changed the way that we talk about movies and the way that we perceive movies and the way that movies are treated as events. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it was the... Which is fascinating, right? Because Jaws had a very strange life story when it comes to its production history, right? Uh, Peter Benson gets yes. a novel. Um, it both wrote the first five pages, sold them, um, delivered the rest of the novel. Publisher didn't like the novel originally, and it is not a good novel as it was finished because they found the first. really are these 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 great movies. Yeah, like The Godfather is very yeah. much a pulpy, trashy book. The novel is is interesting. I've read it myself. It's much more like the people are the real monsters. Uh, it's much more interested in the character dynamics, and everybody is really unlikable. Again, Hooper has an affair with Brody's wife in it, to give you an idea of the kind of stuff that Spielberg cut. Spielberg very famously read the book and declared that he was rooting for the shark, uh, which is not an accurate statement of where the book is. Well, I can appreciate that. Like, the, 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 um, the, the big town uh, city slickers who look down on their nose are, are, are the intelligentsia or um, any, any of the kind of halves would, 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 would look at the town of um, Amity Island or the islands of Amity Island and think these, these guys deserve to get eaten <laughs> they, they really they, should be yeah, yeah, they're, 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 just, they're just a lot of ticks but basically, the the rights were bought. Um, Air- I, as, as in, I can see people rooting for, rooting the, shark. for the shark. Sorry, go on. Well, no, but I mean seriously, the the, the characters are seriously unlikable. Um, seriously unlikable. Mayor Vaughn. Imagine the entire cast was Mayor Vaughn. Wow. That's pretty much what we're rooting there. Mayor Vaughn and that woman who talks about never being an islander. And <laughs> yeah. There's adultery involved as well. But um, the film, the film rights were bought almost immediately. And what's fascinating about Jaws is that it wasn't, as a novel, part of its success as a novel was actually built by its success, by the brand success of the film production. So they decided before they started making the film, they were going to turn the book into a bestseller in order to make the film more valuable. Which is part of the reason why the, the film's iconography and logo, it was designed so that everything associated with the film, the novelization... Uh, the posters, everything like that, would have the same cover and the same image to create a brand recognition with it, right. which is very clever. The book was mailed out to various opinion formers um, and influential people. Now, this obviously was it rewritten before. Uh, it wasn't rewritten, I believe. It was. It was going eventually. So they said that was terrible. Book. Oh, it was a terrible book. <laughs> Benchley's, well, Benchley's first draft was heavily rewritten, but as, as the book finished, it was not a good book. I would argue it's not a good book either. But it was sent out to various opinion formers, including, like, critics uh, and pundits and stuff. But also, like, restaurant owners uh, and stuff like that in high society in Los Angeles and New York. Restaurant owners. Well, the idea was to get people talking about it. They wanted... They they sent it to Barbara Streisand's uh, hairdresser. Joel Silver. Um, 
that's certainly to get people to the idea was that you'd have interactions with people who'd be like I just read this book it's it's fantastic it's so trashy it's brilliant and then they sent it into production with Spielberg production was noticeably and historically troubled uh, it ran massively over in terms of budget in terms of production the shark pop didn't work now according to those involved behind the scenes there was the rumours that Universal was considering tra- thrashing it or trashing it that, that never happened but they were very nervous about it particularly when they, when they screened it internally apparently studio executives saw the cut of Jaws that was released and they, they thought it was okay they didn't think it was great and they thought for the money they'd sink into it it wasn't going to work it wasn't until they screened it in front of an audience that they realised what they had wow yeah, it was, it was probably fortunate as well that at the point when the studio were having jitters, they were on a boat and the studio can't stop them now. <laughs> yeah, they're going to take that boat to the moon somehow. Yeah, yeah, just, just keep filming. Yeah, just keep filming. They've broken the radio. <laughs> the studio can't. We, we conveniently shot Robert Shaw breaking the radio so the studio could tell us to stop filming. Yeah. And we just kept rolling. Um, but, and then it was, here's the thing, right, so... When you talk about Jaws being the first blockbuster, right? A lot of that doesn't necessarily involve the popular structure of the film or the scale of the film or whatever. It involves the distribution model of the film, which is interesting to movie nerds like me. It's probably very boring to everybody else. Up until that point, <laughs> up until that point, summer was not seen as a point for releasing uh, big budget films. Because uh, no, people want to be outside. They want to be outside when it's sunny. Uh, they want to be at the beach having fun, swimming. Um, that, yeah. Yeah. So this movie tells you, no, no, don't go to the beach. Don't ever go. Swim. Don't go to the city. That you idiot. Yeah. Um, and there traditionally films were rolled out the way that we treat independent films today where films would begin small and they'd roll out and the idea was that basically they would spread through word of mouth and they'd roll out gradually. The only time that they released films in cinemas uh, simultaneously in a large scale before this point was for B-movies where they knew that the word of mouth was going to be terrible. It was like dropping a bomb all at once. Jaws changed the distribution model where it was released all at once in the middle of summer in complete hype, which had never been done before for a big budget studio prestige film. Um, and it's the way that we now treat the standard model for blockbusters. Yeah. Um, and it made a massive amount of money, proved that people were willing to go to the cinema in the summertime, um, and that then led, that with the, with the success of Star Wars on top of it, led to the current model that we had, which arose uh, as a response. So George Lucas and Steven Spielberg invented yeah. contemporary uh, cinema, um, or the way that we think of it now. And particularly in response to, say, the auteur-driven uh, mode of the 70s, which we'll mm. talk about when we get a film like, say, Apocalypse Now or The Godfather. Yeah. The studio model was more like... Yeah, because we, we think of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg very much as, as defining the same sort of era, whereas we, 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 we don't think of them in the same um, way as... Way as yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, they, they, they invented it. And it's, it's interesting to watch Jaws with that in mind because it's not structurally... A blockbuster. It's not. It doesn't feel akin no, to the movie. I was just thinking that while 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 watching it, like a, a, like even the stuff where exciting things are happening, it's very much a small town. Yeah. Uh, and they're on the beach, and they're regular kind of people just kind of doing their thing, and there isn't that kind of threat of the end of the world. No. No. Yeah, that we think of now when we think of a blockbuster. But there's also the three-act structure of the film is very interesting to me because it's, it's the kind of thing that I don't think you'd get away with today, right? So the first half takes place on the island um, and it takes place with the shark attacks and it takes place uh, basically Brody trying to get the town uh, to focus up and pay attention. And then the second half drops the entire supporting cast, including 
uh, Brody's wife, including Mayor Bond, including the sad grieving grieving mother, um, the families, all the mute sidekick, the mute sidekick, the dog, and goes off on the ocean alone with these three guys hanging out hunting a shark. It's almost like it becomes a completely different film. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's fascinating. I think the two halves work very, very well together. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that the first half about the town community under pressure. Um, and I think that's probably why we've talked about it for as long as we have, because it is—it is very much it's two movies, yeah. but it's two movies stitched together in a way that works. And, 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 and the first movie um, suggests the second movie. It, aside from just kind of logically, of course, yeah. um, it's the it, it's built this team of masculinity, and it's yeah. like ditch everything else except these three guys yeah and then we can actually have this conversation yeah. so we've had this conversation about how Brody's not really a man and how Hooper's yeah. a different sort of man and how Quint is a stereotypical man let's follow that yeah let's drop the small town corruption let's drop this idea of a community culpability and stuff like that let's mm. drop this idea of insider and outsider mostly uh, and let's actually talk about yeah because actually some of the insider outsider um, stuff goes away once they're on on the uh, boat because they're all literally yeah. in the same boat yeah especially um, once they get drunk by the way um, nothing uh, nothing's better for a hangover than a bit of a shark hunt yeah it gets, gets the blood flowing yeah so I sort of I think we've uh, we've kind of talked about it uh, a lot in terms of we talked about it for two hours and a half nearly at this point oh <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> on the podcast obviously paid off so let's take a little bit and talk about its place in the IMDb top 250 movies um, of all time um, so basically um, first of all first question Andrew do you think Jaws deserves to be on the IMDb top 250 movies of all time absolutely I don't think there's any question there I don't no. think that anybody uh, would question it and I think that sure there are people but, um, hipsters, <laughs> hipsters, Andrew. That's what the that's what those people are. I feel like being from 1975 probably helps helps it to 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 um, to, to I, yeah. Maybe, maybe hipsters at the time would have been like, oh, all this jealous stuff. It's just too much. It's like yeah. driving me out now. At this point, I think it's recognised rightly as as, as a huge classic, defining movie. Part of me, see, that's the thing. Part of me sort of speculates that a lot of whatever, if there is a, if there could be considered to be a Jaws backlash, um, is the one that lumps it in as the father of the modern blockbuster cinema, where I think there is a, a response to it, mm. and where it is sort of treated as something. Yeah, I think Star Wars is maybe more guilty in <laughs> in, in in those terms. Well, it does because it, it went the Joseph Campbell route and it, it sort yeah. of set the template or, yeah. or the distribution model. Which I think Jaws is responsible for. Yeah, where 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 the um, where it's spectacle. Yeah, as opposed to an actual story, which I think exactly. Jaws is. Yeah. I think Jaws works very well as a thematic work, given that we've talked about it for two hours as a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it works quite well in scene to scene, given we've also talked. Whereas if we were talking about Star Wars, we could say so themes, good versus evil. Yeah, that stuff. Yeah, uh, that's more Empire Strikes Back, really. Um, Maybe we could talk more about that. <laughs> yeah. All right, then. So let's talk about, okay, so where it ranks. Should it be higher or lower than where it is? So it's currently ranked at 226, right? Yeah. So I think that was roughly where it was when... When, when we, we announced that we were going to do it. We may have yeah. taken a break for a little while uh, off <laughs> there. It's three places above Prisoners, which we talked about on the podcast mm. before. Uh, do you think it deserves to be at least three places <laughs> above Prisoners? It deserves to be at least three places. This, this is the thing about Jaws that I said when I saw it first. I think when, when, while we were doing Prisoners, I, was, I, I noticed 
Jaws way down there. And this, yeah. this is, these are the best movies, according to IMDb. Um, so it deserves to be on the list. It deserves to be higher. It does. I really it's, think so. Putting it around... It's that good. Is... Like, I'm, I'm not the uh, movie expert that you are, but watching it is... Every scene. Yes. It's just like... There's no fat on it, which is no. remarkable for a film like that has the... the as, as I say, the, the only thing I didn't like was... Um, there were, like, things I didn't like. The, the, the shark prop... Um, people that didn't get eaten. People <laughs> <laughs> who should have got eaten. People who should have got eaten. Yeah, I, I, I could do without that boy getting eaten. <laughs> to be honest. Oh, would you, you, would you would substitute that, would you? Um, no, no. No? All right, then. All right, so we're all agreed that it should be there. We think it probably should be a little bit higher. Absolutely. Um, it's been there in the list since the very beginning. Um, now let's take a look at the In and Out Chart, Andrew. In and Out Chart. Coming in at number one hundred and twelve, which, which is, is a very high entry. Yeah, we have a f- we have a few high entries this week. This is uh, Bachea, Yay, Asaman, and I do beg your pardon if I'm butchering that. It's also known as uh, Children of Heaven, directed by uh, Majid Majadi. Do you know anything about this whatsoever? This is a nineteen ninety seven movie. No, I don't. Um, I'm aware of it. Was- Came in at one hundred and six. Yeah, highest rank is 106 back in May 2016. So, uh, strange one, this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a 1997 movie that, that entered the chart very high. And it's been gradually dropping over the past three weeks. Yeah. Uh, which is, is quite strange. And then disappeared completely. Oh, no, it hasn't. And, no, 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 it came in within the past month. Yeah. So for, it debuted in late May at 106. It's currently at 112. Um, it's been sort of trailing downwards over the last three weeks, uh, which is interesting. I never heard of this. Uh, it's apparently one of the year's best crowd pleasers, according to... Uh, 1997. <laughs> yeah, 1997. Uh, which one is, of 1997's Best crowd pleasers for 2016. Yeah. So Children of Heaven is a 1997 Iranian family drama written and directed by Majid Majad. It deals with a brother and sister and their adventures uh, over a lost pair of shoes. That's right, Darren. It, it, it was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Movie in 1998. I, Let's take a look. Remember, remember the Oscars that year? Um, all, all the categories just roll off my tongue. Yeah. In fact, let's take a look back and see what film actually won against... And by, by that year, I, of course, mean 1999. No, it would have been... Yeah, it would have been the um, the Oscar ceremony. Would yeah, have been like it was yesterday. Which Spielberg ironically won um, the Best Director Oscar that year uh, for his work in Saving Private Ryan. That's uh, right. That was the year when Saving Private Ryan won everything, apart from Best Star Language Movie. Yeah. Which, of uh, course, is Children of Heaven. Beautiful. No, no. Children of Heaven was... Uh, oh, nominated. was nominated. Life is Beautiful. Life is uh, Beautiful. Which also wow. won Best Star Of course. As well, actually. Uh, for I, I was... That was the, uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I was, um, of course I know that. Okay, cool. Uh, and then also coming in, Tokyo uh, Story, at 144, which is remarkable. It's amazing to think that it dropped out uh, at all, uh, which is astounding. It's been there since 2005, which also seems very, um, very late entry for a film that was released in 1953. Yes, Ichiro Ozu. Can, yeah. can you tell me about him? Yeah, so Japanese film director uh, began his work during the uh, the silent era. So he's responsible for films like Late Spring, Floating Weeds, and An Autumn Afternoon. Um, he was voted 
Uh, sorry, his Tokyo Story was voted the greatest film of all time by world directors in the 2012 Sight and Sound poll, mm. uh, which, to be fair, probably corresponds to its uh, late re-entry. Uh, oh. Entered the chart around about 2011, 2012. That could be. Which would have been a nice spike. Which was the buzz. Which was the buzz, uh, which got it in. Uh, it also dropped out uh, yeah. again in late 2012, so around about July. The, the, the makers of this 1953 movie... Um, never gave up. No, in 2011, they finally had a breakthrough with the Science exactly. and Poll and with its rankings on the IMDb Top yeah, 150. That went out a bit of work. Uh, it's astounding to think that it re entered the chart in late May at 140, which is quite a jump from being not on the chart at all. So it was on the chart, um, it's appeared very, very briefly in December 2015, sorry, December 2005. It re-entered in sort of mid-2011, 2012, right at the time the Sight and Sound Poll. Wait till it gets that 250 bump. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as, as, as soon as people hear about it. And want to check out Tokyo Story, which is, is yes. It's By all accounts. A masterpiece. Another foreign language movie, I can only assume, is La Nati da Cabiria? A.K.A. Knights of Cabiria. Uh, which was made in 1957, and I actually, I'm afraid to admit, I know very, very little about it. It's a Fellini film. It is a Fellini film. There uh, are, which perhaps explains it. This is not the first Fellini movie that we've that seen was, in the in and out chart, is it? No, I think, uh, like, no, not Life is Beautiful, sorry, that's the wrong one. Uh, we're thinking of the Dolce Vita. Dolce Vita, um, yes. Which came in and out, I think, a couple of weeks ago as well. A lot of Italian movies. Yes. Um, no Sun's Room. Yeah, there was uh, No Sun's Room. The Sun's Room watch continues. So the Legend of 1900 was another one as well. That's right. Director, yeah. Giuseppe Tornatore, the director of, um, sorry, Cinema Paradiso. But yes, so um, Knights of Cabiria has been in and out um, since around about, again, it's another entry in 2005. For the listener, that's nice with an N, not a K. Yeah, just in case. Uh, Nati de Cabiera. Uh, I apologise for my terrible Italian, or Italian. We'll maybe get an Italian on the podcast when when, 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 we're, when we're required to cover these movies. All right. Um, so that's in there, and um, that's in there. And then... Kind Hearts and Coronets, which, in again. In again. Obviously, it dropped in and out since our last century, which is, uh, we wholeheartedly recommend that. That's the Ealing Studios, Alec Guinness. Uh, love a bit of Alec Guinness. Who doesn't love a bit of Alec Guinness, apart from that poor child in that story they tell about Star Wars? Oh, no. <laughs> so let's, let's look at what's dropped out. Yes. Who cares? Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Which Who's afraid of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Apparently I'm to be top 250 voters, Andrew. That's Who's Afraid. Got uh, there eventually. <laughs> which is remarkable because I believe, and listeners will probably correct me here if I get this wrong, but all four named character roles in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf were nominated for acting Oscars. I believe the two actresses won. I believe it's also one of only two films with Cimarron, I think? to have uh, been nominated for every eligible Oscar. So there's a bit of uh, Oscar Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf trivia for you in your next Virginia Woolf-related trivia round. That is astonishing. Which is an astonishing run. That is some nice trivia, there. That is some very nice trivia. And even if it's wrong, I'm proud that I said it now. Um, But yeah, that's the famous one with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. It's phenomenal to watch. Um, Although, again, it's a Mike Nichols film. It is more familiar as a stage play 
And I'm, I'm not, like, I'm going to be honest, I'm not entirely convinced that it works much better as a film than it does as a stage play, uh, which I would argue is a requirement for being considered a great film. Uh, it's a great story, it's a great script. Well, Citizen Kane, I mean, it was mostly stage actors with, with, with a mostly stage director is uh, first first movie. I mean, it was very much a film. It is very much a film. Like I, that's what I'm saying. I don't think Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf has anything akin to those those great shots, the sweeping shots. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it, it, yeah. Citizen Kane seems like a movie made by people who are doing theatre in order to make movies and just itching <laughs> to get a chance to have a camera. Yeah, whereas Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf occasionally feels more like somebody put a camera in a stage play. Yeah, yeah, it's more of an adaptation. More, yes. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, I, I liked it. I think it's great. I think the four central performances um, are Also great. Richard Burton. Well, also Elizabeth Taylor, when she was good. When Elizabeth Taylor was good, she was great. Yeah. I mean, I think Taylor's reputation... I need, I need to revisit her. I've, 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 I remember her from Cleopatra. Yes, which, and in fairness, Richard Burton was also in... Um, Richard Burton? Richard, Richard, <laughs> apologies John to Richard Burton. Yes, apologies to Richard Burton, who is not the Irish politician named Richard Burton. Um, but yes, Richard Burton was also in Cleopatra. I think Mark Anthony, if I remember correctly. Right? I believe so. Um, during the years. So also dropped out from the charts. Uh, is D250's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Which like, in and out again. That you may know from the internet. Yeah, as opposed to actually knowing that it exists. Yeah. Um, we've talked about it before. We're not going to talk about it uh, again. Um, let's take a look. That the good day. Oh, oh, that was terrible. We're working, working on this. I think that's why it keeps coming in and out. It's, it's, it's just so that we can work on our James Stewart. And, and, and John Wayne impression. That was my John Wayne. It's difficult, <laughs> it's difficult to tell. To be fair. But yes, so, The Grand Illusion, Jean Renoir's um, 1937 film, which I actually have to admit I haven't seen. I'm not nearly as good on past. I don't have to admit I haven't seen it. <laughs> Okay, fine. I have to admit I haven't seen it, though. Uh, I haven't seen it. Classic French film. Uh, and then finally, dropping out at 250 itself oh, is Before Sunset. Well, it Dude, went from 250 to out of here. Which is strange to think about, because you'd imagine with the release of Everybody Wants Some, yeah. uh, with Linklater's Boyhood Oscar, you'd imagine that his work would be sort of buoyed almost. Yeah. It, it there, boyhood, boyhood. Hey! Thank Bef- you. Before, before Sunset's seemed to me like a movie for a certain kind of a period in one's life where you like to walk around talking nonsense. <laughs> um, yes, uh, it is, but it's very good at that. Yeah. It's sort of like, I, 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 like, like Days of Summer does the same sort yeah. of thing when you're a young man trying to figure out love. Yeah. Uh, and you look back years later and go, Jesus, I was stupid. Yeah. Um, and sort of maybe look before sunset, there's an element of that I was an indulgent... So yeah, people talking about things that they don't really understand. Kind of, yeah, yeah, which is which which is which is <laughs> what people do. What they still do. And but, not at all what this podcast is about. No, no way, shape, or form. We talk about things we don't understand, like sharks being giant palaces and oceans being giant vaginas. <laughs> not at all what this podcast does. All right then. No, sir. So having having concluded that, I think the only thing left to do is to pick the movie that we're going to do next week. Now, we're going to spice things up a bit here, Andrew. Would you like to explain how we're going to spice things up? Yeah, we're going to spice things up by seriously messing with the program. Previous to this point, in the interminable run of three episodes, you, you may have gotten used to good movies. Now, we've decided that that was 
um, if not a terrible idea, certainly an incomplete idea, because what about... What about the bad movies? What about the bad movies? And by that you're wondering, kind of, oh, what, the movies that didn't make the 250? Mm. Not quite. No, no. We're, we're talking about the movies that are so terrible that they find a place in the bottom 100. The worst 100 movies ever made, according to IMDb voters. Worst. So, what we're going to do is... We won't do an in and out check. No, for that. They don't deserve it. (laughs) They're all out in the end. Yes. What we're going to do is we're going to introduce basically negative numbers um, into our random number calculator. And basically, if it gives us a negative number, what we're going to do is we're going to watch that 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 movie on the negative negative 100. And what we're going to do is we're going to keep doing that until we end up with a movie on the bottom 100. And when that happens, we're going to watch it, we're going to talk about it, it's going to be so terrible that we're going to go back to talking about good movies for a couple of weeks before we return to this experiment. Yes. So at the moment, there is a chance, there is a roughly two-thirds chance of us getting a good movie. And mm-hmm. a, sorry, three-thirds chance of us, uh, three-fifths chance of us, Darren does not <laughs> a three-fifths chance of us getting a good movie and a two-fifths chance of us getting a bad movie. Andrew, would you do the honours of clicking the number generator there and let's see what number falls out. Let's see those fifths. 64! 64! We've cleared the 200s. We have. We've actually, we're actually going to be talking about a film that people consider to be much, much better than Jaws. Yeah, one of the top 100 movies of ever made. Ever made. And this is going to be a good one. <laughs> it's going to be... Ooh, pretty good. It is. Aliens. Well, James Cameron, 1986 sequel to Ridley Scott's Alien, which is great. We're going to talk about that. Yeah, if, 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 if you want something to listen to in the meantime, um, uh, I Was There Too have a number of episodes now um, about, uh, about aliens and people who, who, who worked on aliens as, as the, um, the Marines. Of course, Paul Reiser also in that movie. He's but, great, but we'll talk about that. We'll be talking about that next week. So with that in mind, uh, let's get to playing the trailer for Aliens. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. All right, people, on the ready line. I am Yeah! I am Nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving in. It ain't us. Get them out of there. Man, four. 
This time, it's war. Wow. Pretty intense. That, the, that's the best trailer we've seen so far. It really is. Um, um, I'm excited about this movie. Even though you've already seen it quite a few times. No, I, the thing about Aliens is I don't know if I have. Oh, fantastic. Well, we'll talk about that next week. Yeah. I just queue in and we'll, uh, we'll call and we'll talk about... Uh, s- certainly it's been long enough ago that I don't... <laughs> Watching the trailer, I'm like, who's that guy? What's he doing? Hey, there's Paul Riser. This is exciting. Great, I'm actually really excited about that as well. So, let's, before we bid farewell, talk about what we're doing and where the listeners can reach us to complain about the massive length of our episodes, uh, strenuous readings, uh, misunderstandings, <laughs> masculinity, uh, and the <laughs> difficulties, difficulties pronouncing the names of certain actors or characters. You know what? Like, we need a guest. We really do. Yeah, yeah. So, so tweet us. We'd we'd love to have you on the show. If 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 you, you know, if you live on planet Earth and want to talk in in English or through an interpreter um, about movies, then then. Yeah. And if if you know what you're talking about, you're way ahead of the two of us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. If 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 you can talk in 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 a way that can be heard, um, yeah. Tweet us. A-Q-U-I-N-N-I-U-Q-A is me. That's uh, A-Quinuka. Which is, I believe, a palindrome. Which I believe is a palindrome. Cool. Uh, I'm Darren underscore Mooney, uh, which is much more straightforward. Uh, I am also, uh, I belong at the movie blog. I occasionally write at thejournal.ie. Uh, and I occasionally write for a podcast with Scanlon about more recent or more contemporary movies. Um... I'm working on a book at the moment, uh, which should hopefully be at bookstands near you soon. On can we talk about that? Uh, we, we've been talking about that stuff, not at the moment. We can uh, still hint. We can still hint. Uh, it's exciting for at the moment. What am I up to at the moment? At the moment, um, eating a lot of hot sauce. Is uh, it good? It's, some of it's good, some of it's good. Uh, don't, don't, go to, don't go to Max and Spencer's for your hot sauce. Do go to Aldi, funny enough. All right. Uh, and on that note, Kona, very hot. On that note, we will leave you. See you next week, guys. Bye. Bye bye.